family is is always the worst when it comes to hatred and it's always the the most bitter arguments and the most bitter hatreds are reserved for family your friends you love and can even hate and you can let them go family you cannot that's the theme of this week's uh, Chuck Tales Dragons of Winter Night Part 2 last we had left our companions they had been split into two different groups um tanis and company <laughs> it's hard to remember who all was with him um tanis and the boys tanis and the boys uh had gone had gotten uh tanis raceland caramantica riverwind gold moon um had all gotten uh Buried beneath the rubble of the Red Dragon Inn. Then they had been freed by Alana Starbreeze riding Griffins, which I thought was a pretty awesome thing. The others, uh, Flint, Taz, Sturm, Lorana, Gilthanus, and a couple of Knights of Salamnia, Derek Crownguard, and I can't remember the other guy because they barely refer to him anymore after this, um, had gone somewhere else it doesn't really specify until later on and um we're getting ready to enter one of my favorite parts of the entire series because it's one of the worst parts um as i said in the previous episode everything goes to hell in the second act that's the best way to write something i feel the empire strikes back and the matrix reloaded and you know people don't like that one i i happen to like that one because you know things do go to hell and they should, so you can resolve them in the third. That's where all your drama is going to be. The first part is the, you know, the classic hero story, the call to adventure. You know, the second part is you're undertaking that call and you're regretting your mistake for actually take, undertaking what you've what you've been called to A do. A new hope, Empire Strikes Back. Yes, I mean, Empire Strikes Back. Luke gets his hands cut off. He finds out Vader's his father. Spoiler alert, if you guys have never seen Star Wars, I don't know if you anybody, anybody out there has not seen Star Wars. Um, Consider yourself lucky if you're one of those. Yeah, what, well, sometimes, yes. Um, but in this You never one, invested yourself into something. You know? Well, I mean, invested in something that broke your heart so thoroughly. Um, this part, everything goes to hell. Uh, we open with... Uh, Tannis and company Are now on the backs of Griffins And they've landed because they're getting ready to go into Sylvanesti um, The Griffins Refuse to go into Sylvanesti Like they, they land uh, Elana can't make them go they just, They're just they nervous, they're just sitting there preening their feathers They're, you know, she can't get And they are loyal and do Everything they always tell them to do, they just won't go So that's troubling in and of itself But as they Get closer Uh 
get closer, it doesn't look like they've been invaded at all. That's what had happened. The dragon armies had invaded Sylvanesti and had, you know, uh, started attacking them, putting the force to the torch and all that stuff. There's not a mark. There's not a mark on the forest. Um, quote, they did not miss the lost wonders of Sylvanesti, for the one themselves became a symbol of the differences that had developed between the elven kin. The elves and Quellanesti lived in harmony with nature, developing and enhancing its beauty. They built their homes among the aspens, magically gilding the trunks with silver and gold. They built their dwellings of shivering rose quartz and invited nature to come dwell with them. The Sylvanesti, however, loved uniqueness and diversity in all objects. Not seeing this uniqueness existing naturally, they reshaped nature, to reshaped nature to conform to their ideal. They had patience and they had time for what were centuries to elves whose lifespans measured in the hundreds of years. And so they reformed entire forests, pruning and digging, forcing the trees and flowers into fantastic gardens of incredible beauty. They did not build dwellings, but carved and molded the maple rock marble rock that exi existed naturally in their land into such strange wonder shapes that in the years before the races were estranged, dwarven craftsmen traveled thousands of miles to view them and they could do nothing but weep at the rare beauty. And it was said a human who wandered into the gardens of Sylvanesti could not leave, but stayed forever enraptured, enraptured caught in a beautiful dream. I imagine it would be the difference between, um, that sounds like a very almost Japanese way of things. You, you, it's beautiful, but you have forced it into something, you know, it, it's, through just dogged effort. Um, there was, uh, Tannis and, and Alana get into an argument right before they go in. And uh, Tannis brings up Sturm, and she refuses to speak of it. She gets angry when he when he brings it up because she is still very much an elf and stiff-necked and, and a bigot. Elves are bigots, let's just face it. I mean, um, we, that gets even even more apparent later on, and uh, it's very interesting. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have a little aside about all the different kinds of elves and Kryn, and it's fascinating stuff, because they are so different. But anyway, quote, it, in, Indeed, it seemed hard to believe that Sylvanesti had been under attack. There were no thin columns of campfire smoke rising in the air, as there would be if the Draconians occupied the country. The land was not blackened and ruined. He could see below him, Tannis, the green of the aspens gleaming in the sunlight. Here and there, the marble buildings dotted the forest with their white splendor. Um, this is where we get into what I'd said before. The elves, the griffins would not go in, even though things look like this. Um, Quote, Tannis didn't like it. Griffins were known as fierce, independent creatures, but once their loyalty was gained, they served their masters with undying devotion. The elven royalty of Sylvanesti have always tamed griffins for their use, again, forcing something into being used. I imagine them as giant dogs. Though smaller than dragons, the griffins' lightning speed, sharp talons, tearing beak, and lion-clawed hind feet made them enemies to be respected. There was little they feared on Kryn, so Tannis had heard. These griffins, he remembered, had flown into Tarsus through swarms of dragons without apparent fear. That should give anybody pause. And now the griffins were obviously afraid. They landed on the banks of the river, refusing all of Alana's angry, imperious commands to fly further. Instead, they moodily preened themselves and steadfastly refused to obey. That's... You know, a terrifying. It should they should be terrified, and indeed, as things go on, a fear starts to settle in on them, and it's not and it's fear from the outside too. It's not just from their own from 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 within. Um, Riverwind thinks it's a trap. Says something. Um, Raceland has an, has an opinion. He he thinks that they shouldn't go in. Um, he warns them. Um, 
I like Karaman's reaction here. I, for some reason, I highlighted it. Maybe I didn't know what I was highlighting. <laughs> Quote, Karaman considered this a moment, then glanced uneasily at his brother, who had not spoken or moved or taken his strange eyes from the fort since the griffins left. The big warrior loosened his sword and scabbard and moved a step nearer Tika. Almost ac- accidentally, it seemed, their two hands clasped. Tika cast a fearful look at Raceland, but held on to Karaman tightly. You know, that's a little interplay between this, you know, that triangle of tension between the two brothers and Tika, who is seen by Raceland as an outsider. But that's because Raceland and Karaman bo- and Riverwind both are very uneasy about what's going on. Um, Raceland feels like a fog of of something that's over Sylvanesti. He tries to warn them. Um, but they go into, they continue on anyway, which uh, I probably wouldn't have done. Um, they come to the river where there's a ferry that's going to take him over. And the river is reddish and smells of blood. And so they decide to get on. I don't know why they decided to get on this. This whole thing seems like an extreme misadventure. <laughs> hey, there's a, there's a river of blood. Let's go, let's, and, let's go ahead and check it out. I think I might bathe in that. I don't know. It just seems like a thing to do. I haven't had a bath in a while. This smells a bit like pennies. Let's get in there. Fuck my Maybe dick. we can fix this. <laughs> Quote, after they get off the, the ferry, though, quote, the river swept the ferry boat downstream in an instant. Twilight vanished at the same moment and night swallowed them. Although the sky was clear without a cloud to mark its, to mar its dark surface, there were no stars visible. Neither the red nor the silver moon rose. The only light came from the river, which seemed to gleam with an unwholesome brilliance like a ghoul. No one else spoke. Uh, Tannis calls for Raceland to... Uh, for his staff so the staff of mages which provides light um and he does um it's the only light they see though and their uh raceland says they have to go into the forest quote no one else spoke or moved they stood on the bank fear overtaking them there was no reason for it and it was all the more frightening because it was illogical fear crept up on them from the ground fear flowed for their through their limbs turning their bowels to water sapping the strength of heart and muscle eating into the brain and they don't know why they're they don't know why they're afraid. They're just, it's just palpable fear. Um, this is, this part coming up is as good as any horror writer I think I've ever read. And remember, this is only the second real book these two writers have, have produced. And it's starting to get really good. That's another thing I, I can't stress enough is that the, the absolute parabolic curve of how good they got so quickly and how the characters really t- started to take on, you know, uh, three-dimensional personalities, but all through this world they've created is no longer just a Dungeons and Dragons throwaway world where you have, you know, uh, basically a carbon copy of Middle Earth, you know, that's just on a smaller scale, essentially. It's not that anymore. As a matter of fact, it's a lot, in a lot of ways, it's more three-dimensional than Middle Earth. It's more, it's both less and both less and more. It's not as epic, but it's larger and, and warmer, and also more terrifying in a lot of ways. But as they go in, 
uh, Tannis, uh, we hear it from Tannis's point of view. Quote, the trees, the beautiful trees of Sylvanesti, trees fashioned and, co- and coaxed through centuries into groves of wonder and enchantment. All around Tannis were the trees. These trees now turned upon their masters, becoming living groves of horror. A noxious green light filtered through the shivering leaves. Tannis stared about in horror. Many strange and, and terrible sights he had seen in his life, but nothing like this. This, he thought, might drive him insane. He turned this way and that, frantically, but there was no escape. All around were the trees, the trees of Sylvanesti, hideously changed. The soul of every tree around him appeared trapped in torment, imprisoned within the trunk. The twisted branch of the tree were the limbs of its spirit, contorted in agony. The grasping roots clawed the ground in, ha- in hopeless attempts to flee. The sap of living trees flowed from huge gashes in the trunk. The rustling of its leaves were cries of pain and terror. The trees of Sylvanesti wept blood. Jesus. That's pretty intense. <laughs> It only gets worse from there. So does that explain why the river smells like blood, too? Well, everything will be explained eventually. I mean, this is, again, a very complex and incredible piece of writing. The like, trees are bleeding, Charles. Uh, well, I'm just saying, we'll get to why all these <laughs> things are happening. And, but I, as I said, it's an it's a incredibly complex and, and, and beautiful and yet aw- an awful, terrible piece of writing, that the description of what's going on. Um. All of a sudden, these animals, misshapen animals, burst from the trees and fall fall on everybody. They start attacking them, and uh, we get another awful thing. Quote, Riding among the misshapen beasts were legions of elven warriors, their skull-like features hideous to behold. No eyes glittered in the hollow sockets of their faces. No flesh covered the delicate bones of their hands. They rode among the companions with brightly burning swords that drew living blood. But when any, any weapon struck them, they disappeared into nothing. The wounds they inflicted, however, were real. Caraman battling a wolf with snakes growing out of its body looked up to see one of the elven warriors bearing down him, a shining spear in its fleshless hand. He screamed to his brother for help. Raceland uh, proves his his metal here. Quote, Raceland spoke. Magic words, I'm not going to say them. A ball of flame flashed from the mage's hand to burst directly upon the elf without effect. Its spear, driven by incredible force, pierced Caraman's armor, entering his body, nailing him to the tree behind. The elven warrior yanked his weapon free from the big man's shoulder. Caraman slumped to the ground, his life's blood mingling with the tree's blood. This is pretty intense shit. Raceland, with a fury that surprised him, drew the silver dagger from the leather thong he wore hidden on his arm and flung it at the elf. The blade pricked its undead spirit, and the elven warrior horse and all vanished into air. Yet Caraman lay upon the ground, his arm hanging from his body only by a thin strip of flesh. This is intense. Jesus. I mean, even somebody, you know... Usually in the in this level of fantasy, the this you know not quite epic fantasy, but I would put the Dragonlance books on par with epic fantasy. That's my opinion. But they're not. A lot of people don't consider it as such. They consider it more intermediate. Like there's not. You don't get a lot of tragedy. But Weiss and Hickman, that's their trade. That's their bread and butter is tragedy. So, um, and then all of a sudden. Everybody starts feeling these awful things. All these awful things start happening. Um, but race, Caraman's growing weaker, and all of a sudden, Raceland starts talking to nobody. And they talk about a bargain. And he says, I need your aid to, to nobody in particular. Um, and then Raceland says, I accept. Quote, Caraman cried out in horror as he saw Raceland's robes, the red robes that marked his neutrality in the world, begin to deepen to crimson, then darken to a blood red, and then darken more to black. He's now become a black robe, black robe mage, an evil mage. Um, 
and, all, and when he does this, he starts to grow really powerful. He starts to use all kinds of magic. Um, he calls lightning down. He's throwing out fireballs. He's and he's getting. He seems to be getting larger and stronger, and, he get, and his voice grows in strength. And all of a sudden, he um, he tells the companions to stand near him. Um, and then all, and then we race on knows. He tells everybody what is actually happening there in a dream. This is a dream, and and Tannis asks him why he can't wake up. And he says, quote, because Lorak, the Elven King, Lorak's belief in the dream is too strong and your belief too weak. When you are firmly convinced beyond doubt that this is a dream, you will return to reality. If this is true, Tannis said, and you're convinced it is a dream, why don't you waken? Perhaps, Raceland said, because I choose not to. Um, Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Caraman at this time is getting weaker and weaker because he's losing so much blood. So Raceland... Uncharacteristically Not least because Karaman is a huge man And it would be hard to support him You know Asks him to lean on him And says he's strong enough To carry him both And he does And he's just leaning on him Carrying deeper into the forest Quote The two traveled deeper Into the forest And the undead elven warriors Stared menacingly at them From the trees They're afraid to attack Raceland They could see the hatred And And the, the hatred of the dead bear the living see it flicker in the hollow eyes eye sockets of the undead warriors but none dared attack the black robe mage Karen felt his life blood his life's blood well thick and warm from between his fingers as he watched it drip upon the dead slime coated leaves beneath his feet he grew weaker and weaker he had the fever and impression that the black shadow of himself gained strength gained in strength even as he lost it he's talking about race on race is getting stronger as Karen gets weaker um then we have um, Tannis All of a sudden Seems Sturm Sturm isn't there Sturm is off With Lorana And Flint And Taz And we'll get to them In a minute And it's an awesome Part of the book too um, Not least because We get to see Some real st- Flint really step up I, I really like Flint In the part And and Tasselhoff of course Is the I think everybody's Favorite character um, But um Sturm tells Tannis that they have to get to the tower first, the the tower in the center of Sylvanesti, because the dragon orb is there. That's what they're there for. Remember, the dragon orb is this, you know, a relic and this uh, thing of massive magical power. It's just, you know, it's it, it can it's impossible to overstate how powerful these things are, and there's more than one of them. So, um, Tannis and and Sturm start to fight. And they are going deeper in the forest and fighting the elven warriors, and they're fighting back to back, and um, they're losing. Um, and he falls a, uh, a root, twists itself around his boot, and he falls. Um, and an, and an undead elf comes to attack him. All of a sudden, a strange warrior comes from out of nowhere, um, spears this elven warrior, and it disappears with a shriek. And quote Tannis looked up to see who had saved his life It was a strange warrior strange yet familiar The warrior removed his helm and Tannis stared Into bright brown eyes Kittyar he gasped in shock you're here how Why I heard you need some help Kit said her her crooked smile as charming As ever seems I was right She reached out her hand he grasped it Doubting as she pulled him to his feet but she was Flesh and blood who's that ahead Sturm wonderful like old times Shall we go to the tower she asked Tannis Laughing at the surprise on his face Kitty R is now here too She's not I mean She's off doing Kitty R things Um, What do a Kitty R thing consist of um, Lots of fighting and having Sex oh my kind of gal. <laughs> Kitty 
Kitty R is a really cool character. I mean, I, I, she's not very likable. She can get it because <laughs> she is such a narcissist. But she's a narcissist. As we discussed before, she's a narcissist for kind of good reason. She had to take care of her brothers and herself because her mother wasn't able to do it. Saw her family ruined after the cataclysm with the night because her father was a night of slamnia. Um, but anyway, then we start going into these, uh, all these other. All the, the members of the party are now living these awful nightmares. Start with Riverwind. Quote, Riverwind fought alone, battling legions of undead elven warriors. He knew he could not take much more. Then he heard a clear call. Raising his eyes, he saw Quishu tribesmen. He cried out joyfully, but to his horror, he saw them turning their ears upon him. No, he shouted in Quishu. Don't you recognize me? I... The Quishu warriors answered only with their bowstrings. Riverwind felt shaft after feathered shaft sink into his body. You brought the Blue Crestal Staff among us, they cried. Your fault. The destruction of our village was your fault. I didn't mean to, he whispered. He slumped to the ground. I didn't know. Forgive me. That's, you know, everybody's living their worst nightmares. Quote, and then we go to Tika next. That's one that always, you know, one that bothered me. Tika's such a sweet, a, a nice... She's just a sweet girl, and she's, you know, she's so unsure of herself, and she's still trying to become a warrior, and this is what happens to her. Quote, Tika hacked and slashed her way through the elven warriors, only to see them turn suddenly into draconians. Their reptiles gleamed red, their tongues licked their swords. Fear chilled the barmaid. Stumbling, she bumped into Sturm, angrily the night whirled, ordering her out of his way. She staggered back and jostled Flint. The, the dwarf impatiently shoved her aside. Blinded by tears, panic-stricken men at the sight of the draconians who sprang into battle full-grown from their own dead bodies, Tika lost control. In her fear, she stabbed wildly at anything that moved. Only when she looked up and saw Raceland standing before her in his black robe did she come to her senses. The maid said nothing. He simply pointed downward. Flint lay dead at her feet, pierced by her own sword. That's, yeah. This, um, as I said, this is some rough stuff. Um, but then we come to Flint's point of view, which is odd because he's not there, I remember. Quote, I led them here, Flint thought. This is my responsibility. I'm the eldest. I'll get them out. The dwarf hefted his battle axe and, battle axe and yelled a challenge to the elven warriors before him, but they just laughed. Angrily, Flint strode forward, only finding himself walking stiffly. His knee joints were swollen and hurt abominably. His gnarled fingers trembled with a palsy that made him lose his grip on the battle axe. His breath came short. And then Flint knew why the elves weren't attacking. They were letting old age finish him. Even as he realized this, Flynn felt his mind begin to wander, his vision blurred. Patting his vest pocket, he wondered where he put those confounded spectacles. A shape loomed before him, a familiar shape. Was it Tika? Without his spectacles, he couldn't see. And that's an uncompleted thought. Um, then we go, Goldmoon is trying to heal, um, trying to heal Riverwind. Mishkal won't answer her prayers. Um, and then Riverwind dies. Uh, because she can't heal him. Um, then we get to Tasselhoff. Um, again, remember Tasselhoff is not there. He's he's with Flint and Lorana and Sturm. Quote, Tasselhoff, fascinated by the horrible wonders around him, wandered off the path and discovered that somehow his friends had managed to lose him. The undead did not bother him. They who fed off fear felt no fear in a small body. Um, then him and uh, Tika get to the door of the tower and she's telling him to hurry up. So he, he's trying to pick the lock. Basically the door's locked. Um, I'm trying to find the, the best, 
quote, backed up against the closed doors, Tika fought for her life against a host of misshapen, nightmare-begotten foes. Taz saw that if he could get inside the tower, they would, she would be safe. Dashing forward, his small body flitting easily through the melee, he reached the door and began to examine the lock while Tika held the backs. They all was back with her wildly swinging sword. Um, I should have this lock picked in seconds, he announced. Just as he set to work, however, something bumped him from behind, causing him to fumble. Hey, he shouted at Tika, irritably turning around. Be a little more careful. He stopped short. Horrified, Tika lay at his feet, bloody, blood flowing into her red curls. No, not Tika, Taz whispered. Maybe she was only wounded. Maybe if he get, got inside the tower, somebody could help her. Tears dimmed his vision. His hands shook. Um, he's starting to hurry now, and you should never hurry. You know, picking lock, I suppose. Quote, he felt a small prick in his finger just as the lock clicked. The door to the tower began to swing open, but Tassahoff just stared at his finger where a tiny spot of blood glistened. He looked back at the lock where a small golden needle spark sparkled. A simple lock, a simple trap. He'd sprung them both. And as the first effects of the poison surged within a, with a terrible warmness through his body, he looked down to see he was too late. Tika was dead. Dropping like flies, these motherfuckers. Yeah, but this is all in imaginary world, right? I shouldn't have said that until after, but it was kind of part of the story, you know. Well, the people that listen to this, I imagine they have, we have a large crossover with the PFR audience, so they're not going to remember that you spoiled it. <laughs> very, um, very low uh, level of uh, comprehension. Comprehension. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm reading it for them because they can't read. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they're not allowed to read. They're shut ins. <laughs> Most, the only thing most of them are in North Korea. Our, our largest listener population is in North Korea. Sure. Somehow. Right. Our, our, our uh, distribution partners, they drop uh, they're usually eight reading track tapes of the podcast right. on top of North Korea. And they're, and they're usually making technical, reading technical manuals to make pipe bombs and things yeah. like that. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> There's going to be a revolution there, and we're going to be part of it, whether we like it or not. <laughs> I happen to support the regime, but whatever. I mean, you know. <laughs> You got to get yourself in. We're getting out. way off track. I know. Anyway, um, now we're f- Caraman and Raceland are still walking through. And um, Raceland, well, I'll just read it. Quote, I've got to rest, Raced, he gasped. Put me down. Certainly, my brother, Raceland said gently. He helped Caraman lean against the pearl wall of the tower, then regarded his brother with cool, glittering eyes. Farewell, Caraman, he said. Caraman looked at his twin in disbelief. When the shadows of the trees, the warriors could see the undead elves who had followed at them at a respectful distance. Creep closer as they realized the mage who had warded them off was leaving. Race, Caraman said slowly, you can't leave me here. I can't fight them. I don't have the strength. I need you. Perhaps, but you see, my brother, I no longer need you. I've, I've gained your strength. Now, finally, I, I am as I was meant to be, but for nature's cool trick, one whole person. As Caraman stared, uncomprehending, Raceland turned to leave. Raced. Caraman's agonized cry halted him. Rayson stopped and gazed back at his twin, his golden eyes, all that were visible from in the depths of his black hood. How does it feel to be weak and afraid, my brother? He asked softly. Turning, Rayson walked to the tower entrance where Tika and Taz lay dead. Rayson stepped over the kinder's body and vanished into the darkness. Keep in mind that they're still doing things they would they would do. You know, like... I think, given, I think at this point, given half the chance, Raceland would actually do that if he was given the opportunity to take his twin strength so he could be stronger within his magic, he would. He's a very uh, – he his narcissism, that's something to him and Kiriara actually hold a lot in common. You know, he doesn't really care about anyone. Um, that's why he's so unlikable. But, you know, we, we, we'll get into that. I mean, it's uh, – there's, there's a whole series of books about him. 
and um, they're really interesting. But anyway, um, then we're back to Tannis and Sturm with Kitty Yara. Um, uh, this is one of my, they, they've gotten to the tower now. Um, and this is one of the saddest parts, um, I think, just because the image. Um, Stern points and he says, quote, oh, no, not Taz. Tannis murmured and Tika. The Kender's body lay just inside his do- the doorway, his small limbs twisted by convulsions from the poison. Near lay the barmaid, her red curls matted with blood. Tannis knelt beside them. One of the Kender's packs had opened in his death throes, its contents scattered. Tannis caught a sight of a glint of gold. Reaching down, he picked up the ring of elven make, carved in the shape of ivy leaves. His vision blurred. Tears filled his eyes as he covered his face with his hands. That is the saddest image to imagine that happy-go-lucky Kender dying of poisoning in the most agonizing way possible and to see that that young girl who wants nothing more to you know just be a warrior woman and you know be more than she was and they and they're both dead um they go but they are now inside the tower quote clasping the ring in his hand tennis followed kit and sturm to a dank slime covered marble hallway paintings hung golden frowns upon marble walls Tall stained glass windows let in the lurid, ghastly light. The hallway might have been beautiful once, but now even the paintings of the walls appeared distorted, betraying horrifying visions of death. Gradually, as the three walked, they became aware of a brilliant green light emanating from a room at the end of the corridor. They could feel malevolence radiate from that green light, beating upon their faces with the warmth of a perverted sun. Um, they've come to what is causing all this. And... Um, even Kitty R is afraid. Tannis had never seen her afraid ever. She's she's always been able to take care of herself, and she's somewhat reckless, you know, because she's she's strong. She's a she's a really good fighter. Like she, you know, of the, of all of them, I don't know who would be the best sword fighter. Uh, Tannis is good, of course. He's had more time to study it, you know. Um, Caraman with his beastly strength would probably be a really good fighter. But I think out of all of them, Stern would probably be the best. He's He's obsessively trains with his with his weapon. He's he is a strong guy. He's not as strong as Caraman, but he's he's stronger than Kitty R. So I think between the two of them it would be the toughest fight. But I think that's I don't know if she'd be able to edge Sturm. I think Tasselhoff whoops them all just by sheer. Um, he steals all their swords somehow. Yeah. Well, you guys weren't using them, <laughs> and then they're like, "Well, now I have to fight you to get him back." And then somehow he he wiggles his way out of actually fighting them, and they end up making lunch you know yeah <laughs> and he eats all of it before they they can sit down and he's like what he, you guys weren't you guys hadn't touched it he does like to eat and he's kind of a drunk as well <laughs> um but then um they they they're going down the hall um and then tanis has faced a lot of stuff but he hasn't really faced his his biggest fear yet but now um he really does Quote, just as Tannis realized he could not take another step, he heard a voice call his name. Lifting his aching head, he saw Lorana standing in front of him, her elven sword in her hand. The heaviness seemingly had no effect on her all, for she ran to him with a, gl- with a glad cry. Um, and then Lorana looks at Kiriara and just the betrayal in, in her eyes. I mean, that's one of the worst things he had to face. Um, then Sturm says something in Salamnic. 
and we see what was causing all this quote at the end of the corridor loomed a gigantic green dragon his name was cyan bloodbane and he was one of the largest dragons on Kryn. only the great red herself was larger staking his head through a doorway he blotted out the blinding green light with his hulking body cyan smelled steel and human flesh and elven blood he peered with fiery eyes at the group Overco- they could not move. Overcome with dragon fear, they could only stand and stare as the dragon crashed through the doorway, shattering the marble as if it had been baked mud. His mouth gaping wide, Cyan moved down the corridor. Um, then um, a, a shadowy figure race one steps up. Um, Sturm. knowing that, for some reason, knowing that uh, race one is responsible for Karaman's death, uh, says he's going to kill him, um, and he springs forward. Um, quote, before any of them could stop him, Sturm walked past Raceland towards Cyan Bloodbane. The green, the great dragon's head wove back and forth in eager anticipation of his, this first challenge to his power since he had conquered Silvanesti. Um, Raceland says he's going to cast a spell to banish the dragon, but Sturm's in his way. Quote, the knight hesitated. He was listening, but not to Tannis's voice. What he heard was the clear clarion call of a trumpet, its music cold as the air from the snow-covered mountains of his homeland. Pure and crisp, the trumpet call rose bravely above the darkness and death and despair to pierce his heart. Sturm answered the trumpet's call with a glad battle cry. He raised the sword, the sword of his father, its antique blade twined with the kingfisher and the rose. Silver moonlight streaming through the broken window caught the sword in pure white radiance that shred the noxious air. Um... Then the horns, they turned in the, the dragon army's horns. And that's, you know, I guess Sturm's, one of Sturm's greatest fears is that he's, you know, will be abandoned, that, that he will be abandoned in battle, I suppose. Um, when you say dragon army, is it just the name of an army or is it an army of dragons? Well, it's, they've got dragons in it. But I'm I'm, th- but I'm the foot soldiers like, are draconians and goblins and all that shit. You know? But I'm, I'm talking like the generals are dragons and they're ordering their troops. The generals are, are also dragons. <laughs> Just a bunch of dragons. And then yeah. there's dragons riding dragons into you know what I mean? Smaller dragons are on the and, and there's dragons who are you know they, they fire missiles. That they are deal out. They, they deal out you know requisition orders for shoes. We have dragons <laughs> yeah. giving out shoes. Have, we have the dragon giving the buzz cut. In the, <laughs> there's dragons working. There's at dragon the mess hall. drill. Dragon drill sergeants, <laughs> which are the scariest dragons. <laughs> they work. Dragons working at the mess hall, scooping out potatoes. <laughs> God. <laughs> um, fuck. But now Sturm is going to go fight the fight Cyan Bloodbane. Cyan Bloodbane, incidentally, is one of the coolest names I've ever fucking heard. It is heard. a tremendous name. Quote Cyan. Cyan. Like the C Y A N. Like the color Cyan. Cyan, yeah. But it's Cyan. I like it. Right. Um, quote Stern stopped gripping his sword in a hand that was sweating inside his glove. The dragon loomed above him, a creature undefeatable, surrounded by masses of its troops, slavering and licking his jaws with his curled tongue. Fear nodded Stern's stomach. His skin grew cold and clammy. The horn call sounded a third time, terrible and evil. It was all over. It had all been for nothing. Death, ignominious death, defeat awaited him. Despair d- descending, he looked around fearfully. Where was Tannis? He needed Tannis, but he could not find him. Desperately repeated the, the code of the knights, my honor is my life. But the word sounded hollow and meaningless in his ears. He was not a knight. What did the code mean to him? He had been living a lie. Storms, storm or wavered, then dropped. His sword fell from his hand as he sank to his knees, shivering and weeping like a child, hiding his head from the terror before him. This is what he's most afraid of, to, that, his, that his courage is going to desert him. 
with one swipe of his shining towel and sigh and blood bade end Sturm's life, impaling the knight's body upon a bloodstained claw. Disdainfully, Cyan shook the wretched human to the floor while the dr- draconians swept shrieking toward the knight's still living body, intent on hacking it to pieces. Um, and this is where Tannis fa- 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 faces his greatest fear. Quote, but they found their way blocked. A bright figure shining silver in the moonlight ran to the knight's body, reaching down swiftly. Lorana lifted Sturm's sword, then straightening, she faced the draconians. Touch him and you will, you will die, she said through the tears. Lorana Tannis screamed and tried to run forward to help her, but the draconians sprang at him. He slashed at them desperately, trying to reach the elf maid. Just as we had won through, he heard Kitty call his name. Whirling, he saw her being beaten back by four draconians. The half-elf stopped in agony, hesitating. At that moment, Lorana fell across Sturm's body, her own body pierced by draconian swords. No, Lorana, Tannis shouted. Starting to go to her, he heard Kitiara cry out again. He stopped, turning, clutching at his head. He stood irresolute and helpless. He watched, watched, forced to watch as Kitiara fell beneath the enemy. His indecision has killed both the women that he loved. That's his greatest fear. Um, this is very bleak. <laughs> I'm not having fun today. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it it's bleak, but it's also extremely well written. I, I, it's, yeah. Well, you, know, you gotta. You mean you gotta have the the uh, the sour to enjoy the sweet, I suppose. Sure. And you know, if everything's that's one of the, the issues I have with something like uh, you know books we'll get into later. R. A. Salvatore's books, um, Dritt Stewart. And there's no stakes because the characters are superhuman. It's like Superman. He's less interesting because he's not vulnerable. Yeah, but you Batman is far more interesting. Yeah, and people used to tease me about that because that was always a talking point I had. <laughs> yeah, and I always loved Superman, and I but still do love Superman. Right, but when you're a kid, that's great. Yeah, when you get older, that's not they so gotta great. They got to figure out a way to make Superman. You're like, this is not. Yeah, this is, and then you have to create villains that are incredibly powerful and all this shit. Like in the Justice League movie, for example, Steppenwolf was just no challenge for him. He beat the dog shit out of him. Yes, so. when, whenever he decided to. It was over. I know he's. He, that's one of the things I didn't like about the movie. You know, I know we're getting off topic here, but you we know. can. No, we can have multiple topics on this. I want to talk about <laughs> Justice League. No. I only watched it once because I, it made me so mad. Well, apparently, it's the, a lot of people have seen the cut, and it's really good, like the new cut. But anyway, it's at least going to be fun. Um, yes, um, that's another podcast, though. Absolutely, Tannis. Now um, he has the ring in his hand, and he's freaking out because everybody's dying. Quote. Tannis, uh, he squeezes it really tight. Quote, Tannis closed his hand, squeezing the ring. The gold bit into his flesh, bit deeply. Pain, real pain. I am dreaming. Tannis opened his eyes. Solonari's silver moonlight flooded the tower, mingled with the bread beams of Lunatari. He was lying on a cold marble floor. His hand was clasped tightly, so tightly that pain had awakened him. Pain, the ring, the dream. Remembering the dream, Tannis sat up in terror and looked around, but the hall was empty except for one other person. Rayson slumped against a wall, coughing. The half-elf staggered to his feet and walked shakily toward Raceland. As he drew near, he could see blood on the mage's lips. The blood gleamed red in Lunatari's light, as red as the robes that covered Raceland's frail, shivering body. The dream. Tannis opened his hand. It was empty. Um, they've awakened, but um, this is, you know, in later years, this is something that the, the companions will always carry with them. This awful, horrible dream. Um, Tannis now is talking to Raceland after he's woken up, but they were never asleep. It's a weird, you know, it's very strange. Um, 
quote, a half hour stare around the hallway. It was as empty as his hand. The body of his friends were gone. The dragon was gone. Wind blew through a shattered wall, flooding Raceland's red robes about him, scattering dead aspen leaves along the floor. The half elf walked over to Raceland, catching the young mage in his arms as he collapsed. Where, the, where are they, Tennis asked, shaking Raceland. Lorana, Sturm, and the others, your brother. Are they dead? He glanced around. And the dragon, the dragon is gone. The orb sent the dragon away when I realized it could not defeat me. This is Raceland talking now. Pushing himself from Tannis's grasp, Raceland stood alone, huddled against the marble wall. It could not defeat me as I was. A child could defeat me now, he said bitterly. As for the others, he shrugged. I do not know. He turned his strange eyes on Tannis. You lived half-elf because your love was strong. I live because of my ambition. We clung to reality in the midst of the nightmare. Who can stay with the others? And Tannis is furious at Raceland because he abandoned Caraman. And he asks him if he's going to kill him. And Tannis says, I don't know. Maybe, you know. Um, they're all, I, I, you know. Caraman comes out and, you know, it comes in now and he's, he's, he's fine. He's whole. And then they're back to that dynamic. He, he leans on Caraman as they go up the hallway because they still have to deal with what has actually happened. And the, the dragon is gone, but, and the dream has been awoken from, but the things are still not, nothing's fixed. Um, quote, the three entered the audience room of the Tower of the Stars. Tennis looked at it curiously. He heard of its beauty all his life. The Tower of the Sun in Qualanost had been built in remembrance of this tower, the Tower of the Stars. The two were alike, yet not alike. One was filled with light, one with darkness. He stared around. The, terrace, the tower soared above him in marble spirals that shimmered with a pearly radiance. It had been built to collect moonlight as the Tower of the Sun collected sunlight. Remember, we've discussed the Silvanestes are, are star, basically star and moon elves, and the Qualanestes are sun elves. Windows carved into the tower were fastened with gems that caught and magnified the light of the two moons, Solinar and Lunatari, making red and silver moonbeams dance in the chamber. But now the gems were broken. The moonlight that filtered in was distorted, the silver turning to the pale white corpse of uh, pale white of a corpse, the red to blood. Um, and now we see uh, in the introduction of Lorak, and I can assure you, if you, if you thought was what was bleak before, this is even more so. Quote, there in the shadows of the front of the audience table was Alana's father, Lorak, the elf king. His shrunken and cadaverous body almost disappeared in a huge stone throne, fancily carved with birds and animals. It must once have been beautiful, but now the animals' heads were skulls. Lorak sat motionless, his head thrown back, his mouth widened a silent scream. His hand rested upon a, ground, a round crystal globe. Is he alive, Tanis Dassenhor? Yes, Raceland answered, undoubtedly to his sorrow. What's wrong with him? He is living a nightmare, Raceland answered, pointing to Lorak's hand. There is the dragon orb. Apparently he tried to take control of it. He was not strong enough so the orb seized control of him. The orb called Cyan Bloodbane here to guard Sylvanesti, and the dragon decided to destroy it by whispering nightmares into Lorak's ear. Lorak's belief in the nightmare is so strong, his empathy with his land so great, that the nightmare became reality. Thus it was his dream we were living when we entered, his dream and our own, for we too came under the dragon's control when we stepped into Sylvanesti. Tannis gets furious with Raison and says, you knew what we were facing and you let us go in it anyway. I mean, but what would have stopped him? Um, Alana comes out of nowhere now, not out of nowhere, but she's, she runs into the room. And um, she sees her father, sees Tannis. Um, hold on one second. 
Holding. Tannis, you know, tries to comfort Alana. She sees, you know, sees her father. Um, she sees it as a dream, but the marks that are now left on are that are, are made in Selwyn Esty are reality. Like it's Selwyn Esty is now a tortured land. Like it's, you know, and it's going to be that way for a long time. Um, then they come to the dragon orb quote. The dragon orb was a huge globe of crystal, at least 24 inches across. It sat upon a stand of gold that had been carved in hideous twisted designs, mirroring the twisted torment of life of Sylvanesti. Though the orb must have been the source of the brilliant green light. There was now only a faint iridescent pulsing glow at its heart. Um, the orb is released Lorak now, but when it does, I find this one of the most awful parts. Um, Tannis asks Raceland before this if the orb can still be of use to them, and Raceland says yes, but this is what I was talking about. Quote, Lorak drew a shivering breath and screamed, a thin wailing scream horrible to hear. His hands, little more than living skeletal claws, twisted and writhed. His eyes were tightly closed. In vain, Tannis tried to calm him. Lorak screamed until he was out of breath, and then he screamed silently. Father Tannis heard Alana cry. She appeared, reappeared in the doorway of the audience chamber and pushed Karim aside. Running to her father, she grasped his bony hands in hers. Kissing his hand, she wept, pleading for him to be silent. But he just, he just continues to scream. I mean, he's just because of what all this... This is his nightmare that he's living in. Um, but then he comes out of it, and he, re- he recognizes Alana. Um, Quote, Alana, my child, alive. He lifted a shaking hand to touch her cheek. It cannot be. I saw you die, Alana. I saw you die a hundred times, each time more horrifying than the last. He killed you, Alana. He wanted me to kill you, but I could not. I know not why, as I've killed so many. Then he caught sight of Tannis. His eyes flared open, shining with hatred. You, Lorak snarled, snarled, rising from his chair, his gnarled hands clutching the sides of the throne. You, half-elf, I killed you, or I tried to. I must protect Sylvanesti. I killed you. I killed those with you. Then his eyes went to Raceland. The look of hatred was placed by one of fear. Trembling, he shrank away from the mage. But you, you I could not kill. Um, he's still in the dream. I mean, can you imagine how bad this would be? We've all awakened from dreams where sometimes you don't even remember the substance of the dream, but you just carry that feeling with you. Can you imagine both remembering it and, and not knowing this is inception times a, a thousand? You know, it's just, it would be the most horrible thing. Um, Karaman, Lorak collapses after this, and Karaman carries him into his bedchamber so, um, so he can rest. Um, you know, even though, as I said, even though Lorak has woken up, these things that happened to Solanesti remain. The trees still weep blood. The river is still of blood. There's still undead elven warriors. There's still misshapen beasts. All these things are still happening because the magic was so powerful that it's not leaving. So um, then everybody else starts to wake up. And one of the most, uh, one of the worst is Tika. Quote, I killed him, Tika cried, catching sight of Tannis. Her eyes was wide, were, were wide with grief and terror. No, don't touch me, Tannis. You know you don't know what I've done. I killed Flint. I didn't mean to, Tannis, I swear. As, Tanner, as Caraman entered the room, Tika turned to him, sobbing. I killed Flint, Caraman. Don't come near me. Hush, Caraman said, gently enfolded her in his big arms. It was a dream, Tika. That's what Ray says. The dwarf, the dwarf was never here. Stroking Tika's red curls, he kissed her. Tika clung to him. Caraman clung to her, each finding comfort with the other. Gradually, Tika's sobs lessened. 
um, and I don't know why, but it just now says, uh, and then Goldmoon comes in, he hugs her. Um, you know, they're all just waking up for this. And then it only occurred to Tannis after this, that everybody's living their own nightmare. I was just like, shouldn't you realize that like immediately? But, um, and then at the end of this chapter where this awful thing happened, quote, we all must sleep. Tannis thought feeling his own eyes burned. Yet. How can we, how can we ever sleep again? Jesus Christ. Um, then we flash to uh, Lorana. Um, she wakes up and she's has. This was a shared dream. All of them were in this. Um, Sturm wakes up. Lorana wakes up. They're, they talk about. They don't want to talk about it at first. Um, she says Sylvanesti. She just cries out Sylvanesti. And then uh, Sturm woke up. Quote, Sturm woke in panic, shaking with terror for long moments. He could only crouch beneath his blanket, shuddering. Then he heard something outside his tent. Starting up, handed on a sword, he crept forward and opened the tent flap. Um, it was Lorana. Um, and then Lorana says, she, I know it sounds silly, but I had the most awful dream. Um, and then they discuss... They discuss the fact that they had the same dream. Flint comes in um, looking old, you know, um, you know, because he's he's experienced this awful thing. Um, then, of course, leave it to Tesselhoff Burfoot to here comes the lighten this mood. Here's the payoff. Yeah. Uh Quote, there was a rustling sound outside, then Tasselhoff burst excitedly through the tent flap. Did you hear I talk? Did I hear you talking about a dream? I never dream, at least not that I remember. Kinder don't much. Oh, I suppose we do. Even animals dream, but he caught Flint's eye and, and came hurriedly back to the original subject. Well, I had the most fantastic dream. Trees crying blood. Horrible dead elves going around killing people. Raceman wearing black robes. It was the most incredible thing. And you were there, Sturm. Lorana and Flint. And everyone died. Well... Almost everyone. Raceland didn't, and there was a green dragon. Tasselhoff stopped. What was wrong with his friends? Their face were deathly pale, their eyes wide. Green dragon, he stammered. Raceland dressed in black. Did I mention that? Quite becoming, actually. Redwood always makes him look kind of jaundiced, if you know what I mean. <laughs> you don't. Well, I, I guess I'll go back to bed. If you don't want to hear any more, he looked around, hopefully. No one answered. <laughs> I mean, he's, <laughs> he's so... I think they put him in there sometimes for that reason to lighten these things up. Cause this is, you know, pretty awful stuff. So, um, they're starting and they all start discussing Flint, Lorana and Sturm discuss this thing and they don't know what happened. Um, and they're Flint says he's going to go out to take watch. And then, uh, Sturm says, him uh, says, I'll join you. Um, and then, uh, quote, the dwarf walked out of the tent. Sturm started to follow, then stopped as his eyes caught a glimpse of light. Thinking perhaps that a bit of a wick had fallen from Lorana's candle, he bent down to put it out, only finding instead that the jewel Lana had given him had slipped from his belt and lay upon the ground. Picking it up, he noticed it was gleaming with his own inner light, something he'd never seen it do before. Um, remember the star jewel is... It's a Sylvanesti thing given to your soulmate, basically. Alana gave it to him because they immediately just fell, 
you know they were they were so alike and she fell in love with a human and it was it's it's unprecedented elves don't give star tools to humans so um then we're back to uh tannis and the other companions quote the morning dawn is sylvanesti for the first time in many long horrifying months but only one saw it lorak watching from the Ms. Ben judd chamber window window saw the sun rise above the glistening aspens the others, worn out, slept soundly. Alana had not left her father's side all night, but exhaustion had overwhelmed her, and she fell asleep sitting in her chair. Lorax saw the pale sunlight light her face. Her long black hair fell across her face like cracks in white marble. Her skin was torn by thorns, caked with dried blood. He saw beauty, but that beauty was marred by arrogance. She was the epitome of her people. Turning back, he looked outside into Sylvanesti, but found no comfort there. A green, noxious mist still hung over Sylvanesti, as if the ground itself were rotting. This is my doing, he said to himself, his eyes, his eyes lingering on the twisted, tortured trees, the pitiless shapen beasts that roam the land, seeking an end to their torment. Jesus. For over 400 years, Lorak had lived in this land. He had watched it take shape and flower beneath his hands and the hands of his people. There had been times of trouble, too. Lorak was one of the few still living on Kryn to remember the cataclysm. That's pretty, you know, living through that must have been terrible. But the Selvanesti elves have survived it far better than others in the world, being estranged from other races. They knew why the ancient gods left Kryn. They saw the evil in humankind. That's not true. Although they could not explain why the elven clerics vanished as well. What happened before the, before the cataclysm was like the rapture. All the truly devout clerics were taken away, so they weren't hadn't, hadn't, didn't have to go through that. The elves of heard, of course, via the winds and birds and other mysterious ways of the sufferings of their cousins, the Quawanesti, following the cataclysm. And though grieved at the tales of rape and murder, the Sylvanesti asked themselves what one can expect living among humans. They withdrew into their forest, renouncing the outside world and caring little that the outside world had renounced them. Um, Lorak. Lorak considers the dragon orb. This is... Alana and, and Lorak start to talk about. I wish I could read this whole part because there's so much good stuff here. You know, Lorak and Alana discussing what they're going to do. We have nothing but time. You're allowed to read well, as, I mean, as but, little as you want. Um, I noticed you barely checked your notes. That's very impressive. Also, you, you really remembered your that. notes this time. <laughs> That's the most also impressive, impressive. Part. <laughs> Quote, he remembered the globe vividly, remembering it burning with a swirling, fascinating green light that pulsed and strengthened as he looked at it. And he remembered knowing, almost from the first seconds he had rested his finger on the globe, that he had made a terrible mistake. He had neither the strength nor the control to command the magic, but by then it was too late. The orb ca- had captured him and, and held him enthralled, and it had been the most hideous part of his nightmare to be constantly reminded of that he was dreaming, yet unable to break free. That would be awful. Knowing you're stuck in that and you cannot. Have you ever been in a dream and you try to wake yourself up? Yes, it's the worst. It sucks, especially if you. Uh, I've experienced some sleep paralysis before. I don't know if you have. I don't think so. I know I've watched a documentary about sleep paralysis demons. Like there'll be a demon just kind of staring at you. That just sounds horrible. Well, mine is just like I'm trying to make my body. Like I'm half asleep and half awake, and I'm trying to make my body go, and I can't make it. You know. So you ever had restless leg? Restless leg syndrome. Yeah, when like, I don't when I don't not, take kratom, I get restless. It's leg. not quite. It's not really painful, but it feels like your legs just need stretched out or something. Yes, and then you get this like, yeah, it's awful. I get that when I don't work out a couple of days, and it almost feels like growing pains. <laughs> um, um, Alana and Lorak uh, are now discussing 
Uh, quote, where all people return, Alana, he stared into the green was, that was not vi- the vibrant room of life, but of death and decay. Of course, Alana said quickly. Lorak patted her hand. A lie, my child? Since when have, have elves lied to each other? I think perhaps we may have lied to ourselves, Alana murmured, uh, murmured, recalling that she had learned of Goldmoon's teaching. The ancient gods did not abandon Grandfather. A cleric of Mishakal, the hero, traveled with us and told us what she had learned. I did not want to believe, Father. I was jealous. She is a human, after all, and why should the gods come to the humans with this hope? But I see now the gods are wise. They came to humans because we elves would not accept them. Through our grief, living in this place of desolation, we will learn, as you and I have learned, that we can no longer live within the world and live apart from the world. The elves will work to rebuild not only this land, but all lands ravaged by the evil. Ravaged by the evil. She's really grown and seeing what their, their insular nature and their bigotry and all that stuff has, has wrought here with this. I mean, they... Um, then he tells him this is one of the saddest parts he's getting uh lorak starts to falter quote i give myself to the land he whispered bury my body in the, bury my body in the soil daughter as my life brought this curse upon it so perhaps my death will bring its blessing lorak's hand slipped from his daughter's grasp his lifeless eyes stared out into tormented land of sylvanesty but the look on his look of horror on his face faded away leaving it filled with peace and alana could not grieve so lorak has died um and this is not dream. No, he's dead. I mean, the, the experience has killed him. He was a. Do <laughs> he was the thing about it was Lorak was a powerful was a powerful wizard, extremely powerful. Like he and he was not like Gelthinus, where this kind of like a hobby. You know, it's something that he devoted four hundred years of his life to, and he still could not deal with the dragon orb. Put that in perspective. The dragon orb knew how powerful Raceland was and listened to him when he said when, and, and sent the dragon away because it knew it could maybe take control of him or something. That should give you an idea of how powerful Raceland is becoming. So um, after this, the companions are preparing to leave Sylvanasty. They're going to go north, try to get to Sandcrest. Uh, it's this island. Um, uh, they take the dragon orb. One of the coolest parts is, is that it's huge. And Raisin pulls out a bag like this big and says, put it in, tells Caraman to put it in there. Caraman's the only one strong enough to pick it up. But then when he does, it shrinks down and everybody's, you know, freaks out. Um, and everybody starts to dis- distrust Raisin now because he's growing so powerful and, and the things that have happened in the dream. I don't think it's quite his fault. Um, you know, it is, but it isn't. You know, he's he is who he is. You know, he's not. Again, Raceland is one of those characters. You love him and you hate him. And sometimes when he deals something out to somebody that, that is coming to him, it's pretty great, you know, um, but usually not. Um, he goes away and goes to rest. Um, then before they leave, Tannis asks if... Uh, Alana says that uh, Lorak asked him to bury, uh, asked her to bury him, which is not an elven custom. Um, quote: This was not quite true, uh, as in you know, they asked if she could ha- if they could help, and Alana said, "No, my father um, wanted me to do it alone." But she's lying. But Alana knew how shocked these people would be at the sight of her father's body being consigned to the ground, a custom practiced only by goblins and other evil creatures. 
The thought appalled her. Involuntarily, her gaze was drawn. Her gaze was gone to the tortured and twisted tree that was to mark his grave, standing over it like some fearful carrion bird. Quickly, she looked away. Her voice, her voice faltered. His tomb is is long prepared, and I have some experience of these things myself. Do do not worry about me, please. Tana saw the agony in her face, but could not refuse to honor her request. We understand, Goldmoon said. Then on impulse, the Queen Plains woman put her arms around the elven princess, princess and held her as she might have held a lost and frightened child. A lot stiffened at first, then relaxing Goldmoon's compassion and embrace. It's a pretty symbolic thing that this elf queen, uh, you know, now she's now a queen, basically, allowed this human barbarian to hug her after all these things. Um, um Tannis and Alana. Um, Tannis had, Tana asked Alana what she's going to do. Um, she says she's going to go to Urgoth, um, and she's going to help fight the dragon armies, like with the rest of the Sylvanesti. Remember, the Sylvanesti are no longer in Sylvanesti. They've been, they've, uh, they're refugees now. Um, we'll get into that in a minute. It's a big part of the big part of the book. Um, the, the she's going to Sancris because the uh, Knights of Slamnia are there. And they, you know, might agree to help her. She doesn't know yet. Um, then uh, Tannis mentions Sturm. Um, and she's, and Alana says something about um, not being comfortable around humans. And Tannis says something about her learning to love a human. Quote, Alana lifted her head, her clear eyes looking at Tannis's. Would he be happy, Tannis, away from his holy land, for I must return to Sylvanesti? And could I be happy, knowing that I must watch him age and die while I am still in my youth? I asked myself these same questions, Alana, Tannis said, thinking with pain of the decision he had reached concerning Kitiara. If we deny, deny that love is given to us, we refuse, if we refuse to give love because we fear the pain of loss, then our lives will be empty or a loss greater. That's a great quote. Um... But then we have some self-reflection by Tannis because Alana talks about, she says, she basically says, I see why people follow you, you know, your wisdom and all that stuff. At first she didn't like him, but now she sees, you know, there's a deep respect there now. Um, it will come into play later. But then we have, again, a quote from Tannis, who I thought was kind of funny, quote, but he cannot help wondering as he did um, that if he was so damn wise, why was his life such a mess? <laughs> People say that about me. I mean, that's me. I mean, yeah, I'm, that's all of us. Yeah. Um, then they're uh, they're getting ready to leave. Quote. Tannis joined the companions at the edge of the forest. For a moment, they stood there, reluctant to enter the woods of Silvanesti. Although they knew the evil was gone, the thought of traveling for days among the twisted tortured force was a somber one they had no choice already they felt the sense of urgency that had driven this this far time was sifting through the hourglass and they knew could not let the sands run out although they had no idea why come my brother to race said raceland finally the mage led the way into the woods the staff of mages shedding its pale light as he walked carolyn followed with a sigh one by one the others trailed after tennis alone turned to look back they would not see the moons tonight. The land was covered with a heavy darkness as Vitu mourned Lorak's death. Alana stood in the doorway to the Tower of the Stars, her body framed by the tower, which glimmered in the light of moon rays captured ages ago. Only Alana's face was visible in the shadows, like the ghost of the silver moon. Tannis caught a glimpse of movement. She raised her hand. There was a brief, clear flash of pure white light, the star jewel, and then she was gone. That ends that part. Um... 
Then we come to, we're going back to the other companions now. What they, the other companions went to this place called Ice Wall, this place far in the north, get another dragon orb, ironically enough. Not ironically enough, the dragon orbs are like the, the thing they have to have now. And there's this whole, they wrote, they wrote a whole other, whole nother, whole nother, a whole other book about defeating this dragon high lord named Fialthias, who is a dark elf. And Loran is the one who killed him in single combat. Like, you know, it's not in the book. Like, it's discussed after the fact. Yeah, and I'm sitting here thinking, why wouldn't you put that in the book? But because brevity with these books is, you know, they probably made him cut it. They're like, you know, this is too too big for this book. You know, they have to be within like 500 pages or something like that. So they made him cut it. But they did write another book about it later because there's a second group of uh, uh, trilogy of books called the Lost Chronicles. It it deals with um, another event that that was not uh, that was discussed after the fact was the, the recovery of the hammer of Karis, all that stuff that happened at the beginning. That's another book called Dragon of the Dwarven Depths, and they go into that. I've never read them. I probably should. But Dragonlance soured for me for quite a while. I will probably read them now. But anyway, um, I don't know what caused it. I know what caused it was the uh, – I felt like the Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman were ousted by Wizards of the Coast after uh, TSR had gotten bought out. And um, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but to me it really feels like that's what happened. So it kind of made me very resentful. Um, but after they after this is done, um, they're on this uh, ship uh, leaving Icewall, and we open with Flint. Quote, the old dwarf lay dying. His limbs will no longer support him. His bowels and stomach twisted together like snakes. Waves of nausea broke over him. He could not even raise his head from his bunk. He stared above him at an oil lamp swimming, swinging slowly overhead. The lamp's light seemed to be getting dimmer. This is it, thought the dwarf. The end. The darkness is creeping over my eyes. He heard, he heard a noise near him, a creaking wooden planks as if someone were very quietly stealing up on him. Feebly, Flint managed to turn his head. Who is it? He croaked. Tassahoff whispered a salacious voice. Flint sighed and reached out a gnarled hand. Taz's hand closed over, closed over his own. Oh, lad, I'm glad you see, you've come in time to say farewell, said the dwarf weakly. I'm dying, lad. I'm going to reorks. What? Asked Taz, leaning closer. Reorks, repeated the, repeated the dwarf irritably. I'm going to the arms of reorks. No, we're not," said Taz. "We're going to Sandcrest, unless you mean an inn. I'll ask Stern. Reorks arms. Hmm. Reorks, the god of the dwarves. You doorknob, Flint roared. I love this. I love when they get into arguments. Oh," said Taz after a moment. That Reorks. Listen, lad. Flint said more calmly, determined to leave no hard feelings behind. I want you to have my helm, the one you brought me in Zaxar. You brought me in Zaxaroth with the Griffin's mane. Do you really? Taz asked, impressed. That's awfully nice of you, Flint. But what will you do for a helm? Oh, lad, I won't need a helm where I'm going. You might in Sandcrest, Tad said dubiously. Derek thinks the high, dragon high lords are preparing to dr- launch a full-scale attack, and I think a helm could come in handy. <laughs> I'm not talking about Sandcrest, Flint snarled, struggling to sit up. I won't need a helm because I'm dying. I nearly died once, Taz said solemnly. Setting a steaming bowl on a table, he settled back comfortably in a chair to write his story. Is that time in Tarsus where the dragon knocked the building down on top of me? Elliston said I was, I was nearly a goner. Actually, those weren't his exact words, but he said it was only through the inner, inner, oh well, inner something of the gods that I'm here today. Flint gave a mighty groan and fell limply back on his bunk. Is it too much to ask? He said to the lamp swinging above his head that I allowed me to die in peace, not surrounded by kinders. The last was practically a shriek. What's happening here? 
Flint is not dying. Flint is a hypochondriac, and he's seasick, and it's cold, so he's not having a good time of it, and he does this. What He sneezes. He's got he's got all kinds of hypochondriac. It's issues. sort of like at the beginning of COVID. Anytime somebody had a sneeze or a cough, they're like, "Oh no, it's over." Yeah, but he's so being so dramatic about it and all yeah. that stuff. Um, <laughs> then uh, Tasselhoff uh, offers him some pea soup. Not listening, and then the aftermath is funny. Quote: Lorana huddled out of the wind on the foredeck, started as she heard the most frightening roaring sound come from below decks. Followed by the cracking of smashed crockery. She glanced at Sturm, who was standing near her. The knight smiled. Flint, he said. Yes, Lorana said he worried. Perhaps I should. She was interrupted by the appearance of Tasselhoff dripping with green pea soup. I think Flint's feeling better, Tasselhoff, solidly. But he's not quite ready to eat anything yet. So. <laughs> um, then we get a little brief sketch of what happened before this. Quote. The journey from Icewall had been swift. The small ship fairly flew through the seawaters, carried by the by the currents and the strong, cold, prevailing winds. The cab, the companions had traveled to Icewall, where, according to Tasselhoff, a dragon or was kept in the Icewall castle. Remember, Tasselhoff had those glasses that he acquired. <laughs> they found the orb and defeated the evil guardian Fielthias. Feel Thaz, a, dra- a powerful dragon lord. Escaping the destruction of the castle with the help of the ice barbarians, they were now on a ship bound for Sandcrest. Although the pr- precious dragon orb was stowed safely in a chest below decks, the horrors of their journey to Icewall still tore them out of their dreams at night. But the nightmare- nightmares of Icewall were nothing compared to that strange and vivid dream they experienced well over a month ago. None of them referred to it, but Lorana occasionally saw a look in fear and, fear and loneliness unusual to Sturm that made her think he might be recalling the dream as well. Um... And they discussed something that happened uh, when they were in Ice Wall. They're fighting again. This would have been the coolest thing. There were uh, walrus men called the Thanoi. There were winter wolves and bears. They fought all these things. And I have to hear about it, you know, ipso facto. Is that what it is? After the fact. Ex post. Ex post facto. Um, and it just sounds like the coolest thing ever. But they do discuss uh, something that happened, uh, something they found. Quote, it was during their search that they came upon a startling sight, a huge dragon over 40 feet long, its skim of shivering silver completely encased in a wall of ice. The dragon's wings were spread, poised for flight. The dragon's expression was fierce, but his head was noble, and he did not inspire them with a the fear and loathing they remembered experience around the red dragons. He said they felt a great, overwhelming sorrow for this magnificent creature. But strangest to the fact that the dragon had a rider. They had seen the dragon high lords ride their dragons, but this man appeared to be, by his ancient armor, to be a knight of Salamnia. He held tight. Held tightly in his gloved hand was a broken shaft what must have been a large lance um they have a discussion storm says something about humor um Derek crown guard and the other slanic knights just see humor as they're really you know they see storm as like a naive he doesn't get that the knighthood is is not this. It's it's more of a political movement now as opposed to you know being truly living by the oath and the measure, you know, um, and see him as the fact that he believes in human stuff like that is very embarrassing that he believes that you know that it's that's you know they see him as kind of not stupid but very naive as I said. Um, 
and uh, they get a discussion about him. Quote, I don't know what Taz is talking about, Sturm said, gazing up the dragon as rider thoughtfully, but I remember my mother telling me the human rode upon a silver dragon carrying the dragon lance in his final battle. And I remember my mother telling me to leave sweet cakes for the white-robed old one who came to our castle at Yule time, scoffed Derek. No, this is undoubtedly some re- re- renegade knight enslaved by evil. Um, Sturm thinks that what is carrying in his hand is dragon lance. I don't think the knights believe in dragon lances, really. Um, and they're discussing whether to take it with them. Um, then we get a, you know, the, Derek Krongard is now starting to order Sturm around because he knows he's got Sturm in his pocket because Sturm is not really a knight yet. He's not gone through the trials. He's not taking his oaths or anything. So he keeps threatening him, and then that character gets, continues to be more less and less likable. Um they don't know how to get it. Gilthinus um, uses some magic to melt um, to melt the ice to get to the to get to the lance, um, and then they can't though they can't move it um, until Sturm st- uh, comes forward. Quote: As Sturm put his hand through the hole in the ice and took hold of the lance, the icebound figure of the knight seemed to move suddenly, just slightly. Its stiff and frozen hand relaxed his grip on the shattered lance. Sturm never nearly fell in his amusement in, in amazement. And letting go of the weapon hurriedly, he backed away along enough along the dragon's ice-covered wing. He's giving it to you, cried Lorana. Go ahead, Sturm. Take it. Don't you see? He's giving it to another knight, which I'm not, Sturm said bitterly. Perhaps that's indicative. Perhaps it is evil. Hesitantly, he slid back to the hole and grasped the lance once more. The stiff hand of the dead knight released its grip. Taking hold of the broken weapon, Sturm carefully brought it out of the ice. He jumped back to the ground and, and stood staring at the ancient shaft. That was wonderful, Tass said not said an off flint. Did you see the corpse come alive? No, snapped the dwarf, and neither did you. Let's get out of here, he added, chittering. Um, and then Derek shows back at saying he had given Sturm a, an order and just being a prick. Um, and it's uh, Laurent and Sturm start to discuss basically the nature of the knighthood. Uh, Laurent asks him if he believes in humor. Quote, I don't know what to believe anymore, Sturm said, bitterness hardening his voice. Everything used to be black and white for me, all things clear-cut and well-defined. I believed in the story of Huma. My mother taught it to me as the truth. Then I went to Salamnia. He paused if unwilling to continue. Finally, seeing Laurent's face with interest and compassion, he swallowed and went on. I never told anyone this, not even Tannis. When I returned to my homeland, I found that the knighthood was not the order of honorable, self-sacrificing men my mother had described. It was rife with political intrigue, like I said a minute ago. Um... The best of the men were like Derek, honorable, but strict and unbending, with little use for those they considered beneath him. The worst, he shook his head. When I spoke of Huma, they laughed. An itinerant knight, they called him. According to their story, he was cast out of the order for disobeying its laws. Huma roamed the countryside, they said, endearing himself to peasants, who thus began to create legends about him. But did he really exist, Lorana persisted, saddened by the sorrow in Storm's face? Oh, yes, of that there can be no doubt. The records show that survive, that survive the Cataclysm lists his name among the Lord Orders of the Knights. He's probably a Knight of the Crown, or a Knight of the Sword, I think. Um, but the story of the Silver Dragon, the final battle, even the Dragonlands itself, no one believes anymore. Like Derek, there is, like Derek says, there is no proof. The Tomb of Huma, according to the legend, was a towering structure, one of the wonders of the world. But you can find no one who has ever seen it. All we have are children's stories, as Rysel would say. 
Stern put his hand to his face, covering his eyes, and gave a deep, shuddering sigh. Do you know, he said softly, I thought I'd never say it, but I miss Raceland. I miss all of them. I feel as if a part of me has been cut off, and that's how I felt when I was in Salamnia. That's why I came back instead of waiting and completing the test for my knighthood. These people, my friends, were doing more to combat even the world than all the knights lined up in a row. Even Raceland, in some way, I can't understand. He could tell us what all this means. He jerked his thumb back to, back to the ice encased knight. At least he would believe in it. If he were here, if Tannis were here, Sturm could not go on. Yes, Lara said quietly, if Tannis were here. Remember, they don't. They don't know if Tannis is alive. They don't know if anybody's alive. You know, um, they think they, they likely think they're dead, especially Tannis. Lorana thinks Tannis is dead because she said farewell to him. So, you know, Storm feels bad bringing that up. You know, even though Tannis was undoubtedly as close to uh, him as as he was to Lorana. Um, all of a sudden, they. Uh, They've got a fair wind. They're going to Santa Cruz, and then uh, they see something uh, in the sky. Quote, turning over and walking to the port side of the ship, he leaned against the railing, staring out across the pink tin sea. Laurent saw him pull something from his belt and run his fingers over it lovingly. There was a bright flash. Well, I'm sorry, this is not that, but this is something uh, about Sturm. As it caught the sun's rays, then he slipped it back into his belt. His head bowed. Laurent started to go to him when suddenly she stopped catching a glimpse of movement. That's where it led him. He was bringing out the star jewel. Um, the star jewel? The star jewel. Um, to look at it, to remember. He's thinking about Alana. Um, then a uh, huge white star, uh, something starts to come over them over the water. Um, Taz asked to borrow somebody's spyglass why he just didn't take it i don't know quote tesselhoff gasped let me borrow that he asked holding out his hand for the watch's spyglass reluctantly the man gave it to him taz put it to his eye then he grew softly oh dear he muttered lowering the spyglass he shut it up with a snap and absently stuffed it into his tunic the sailor caught him by the collar as he was about to slide down what taz said startled oh is that yours sorry <laughs> <laughs> Giving the spyglass a wistful pat, he handed it back to the sailor. Taz slid skillfully down the ropes, landed lightly on the deck, and came running over to Sturm. It's a dragon, he reported breathlessly. Um, we're introduced now to, uh, well, we'll just get into the description. Quote, this is from the dragon's point of view. Quote, the dragon's name was Sleet. She was a white dragon, a species of dragon smaller than other dragons dwelling in Kryn. Born and bred in the Arctic regions, these dragons were able to withstand extreme cold and control the icebound southern regions of Ancelon. Because of their smaller size, the white dragons were the swiftest flyers of all dragon kind. The dragon high lords often used them for scouting missions. Thus, Sleet had been away from her lair in Ice Wall when the companions entered it in search of the dragon orb. The Dark Queen received a report that Silanesi had been invaded by a group of adventurers. They had managed somehow to defeat Cyan Bloodbane and were reportedly in possession of a dragon orb. White dragons are small. They're not terrible intelligent. Um... They would probably be the. There is a good contemporary, a, a good. I can't remember. It might be copper dragon, which is would be the uh, the equivalent on the good side. Um, but you know, uh, white dragons are just. Uh, like I said, they're not. They're not. They're not terribly impressive as dragons go. Um, now she's, but this dragon is to she. There's a lot of female dragons. 
you know, uh, Cassanth Onyx was the one in Zach Saroth was a female dragon. And now we have another female dragon. I've always said it's time for female dragons to take their place <laughs> in, in line for superiority. Um, She's the dragon is deciding what she's going to do to how to get the dra- dragon or back. So she forms a plan. Um, f- quote at first, she had just planned to freeze the ship with her icy breath. Yeah, they breathe ice, not not uh, fire like other dragons. Then she realized this would be simply a close the orb in a frozen block of wood, making it extremely difficult to, to remove. There was also every probability the ship would sink before she could tear it apart. And if she did manage to take the ship apart, the orb might sink. The ship was too heavy to lift her in her claws and fly to land. Sleet circled the ship and pondered, while down below she could see the pitiful humans racing around like scared mice. The dragon considered sending another telepathic message to her queen asking for help, but Sleet hesitated to remind the vengeful queen of either her presence or her ignorance. The dragon followed the ship all day, hanging just above it, pondering. Floating easily on the wind currents, she let her dragon fear stir the humans to a frenzy of panic. Then, just as the sun was setting, Sleet had an idea, without stopping to think, to think she acted upon it at once. Um, they're all freaking out on the ship now. Um, we have a an exchange between Elistan. Who remember he's there. Elistan I, I like, but he's so good that he's he's not terribly interesting. <laughs> he's a cleric of Paladine, you know. Um, and then uh, this is you know Derek being an asshole again. Quote: I have more faith in my sword than than. Than that old man and his god, Derek said to Sturm. The knights have always honored Paladin, Sturm said in rebuke. I honor him, his memory, Derek said. I find this talk of Paladin's return disturbing, Brightblade, and so will the council when they hear of it. You will do well to consider that that when the question of your knighthood arises. Sturm bit his lip, swallowing his angry, angry retort like bitter, like bitter medicine. Um, and then, you know, they're deciding what to do, and all of a sudden the dragon attacks. It's getting right. Uh, she, the dragon's coming low. You know, they, they know she's moving into attack position, but this is something they didn't expect to happen. Quote, Lorana, Lorana clinging to a post, waited fearfully for the flaring orange light, the heat, the flames. Instead, there was a sudden sharp and budding cold that took her breath away and chilled her blood. She could hear above her rigging snap and crack, the flapping of the sail cease. Then as she stared upward, she saw white frost begin to sift down between the cracks in the wooden deck. Um, the dragon is freezing the ship and pushing it to shore. Um, I, <laughs> I like the, the dragon. I find kind of humorous quote. It was an excellent plan. And went to which sleep was rather proud. She, she skimmed after the ship, letting the current and the tide carry it to shore, giving a little puff now and then it was only when she saw the jagged rock sticking up out of the moonlight water that the dragon suddenly saw it, saw the flaw in her scheme. Then the moon's light was gone, swept by the wind by the, by the storm clouds, and the dragon could see nothing. It was darker than her queen's soul. Um, I find it funny because the dragon, again, is not very intelligent. She <laughs> bit of a dope. Yeah, uh, you know, really not uh, not a, not an. You know, some dragons are more intelligent than a human could ever hope to be, or any other race for that matter. Gold dragons are essentially gods in themselves, and the red dragons are the same. And then you had Cyan Bloodbane, who I like the fact that they made Cyan Bloodbane bigger than almost any dragon on Kryn. You know, there's only one dragon on Kryn bigger than him. Green dragons get big, but they don't are not supposed to get that big. I like the fact there's some play there with how big dragons get. Um, but then the uh, Gilthanus and Lauren and all of a sudden start, you know, letting loose with arrows. Quote, 
An arrow was an arrow whist, whistled past her head. This is the dragon. Another tore through the fragile membrane of her wing. Shrieking in pain, sleep pulled up from her steep dive. There must be elves down there, she realized in a fury. More arrows zing past her. Cursed, night-seeing elves. With her elven sight, they would find her an easy target, especially crippled in, in one wing. Feeling her strength ebb, the dragon decided to return to Icewall. She was tired from flying all day, and the, and the arrow, wound, arrow wound hurt abominably. True, she would have to report another failure to the Dark Queen, but as she came to think of it, it wasn't such a failure after all. She had kept the dragon orb from reaching Sancris, and she had demolished the ship. She knew the location of the orb. The queen, with her vast networks of spies on Argoth, could easily recover it. Mollified, the dragon fluttered south, traveling slowly. By morning, she had reached her vast glacier home. Following her report, which was moderately well-received, Sleet was able to slip into her cavern ice and nurse her injured wing back to health. Um... They, and then they're getting off the ship. The ship is wrecked on the rocks. They're getting off, uh, you know, gathering their belongings. And, and then a party, um, some a party approaches them, like a group of people. Um, quote, the companions started and immediately drew their weapons, gathering around the helpless dwarf. This is, you know, Flint's in no condition to even walk. But Lorana, after an instant's fright, peered into the faces in the torchlight. Hold, she cried. These are our people. These are elves. Sylvanasty, Gilthanus said heartily. Dropping his bow to the ground, he walked forward to where the elf who had spoken. We had journeyed long through darkness, he said in, in Elven, his hands outstretched. Well met, my brother. He, he never finished the ancient greeting. The leader of the Elven party stepped forward and slammed the end of his staff across Gilthanus' face, knocking him to the sand unconscious. Um... Lorana steps up to say, what the hell are you doing? You know, why are you attacking him? Um, remember the Sylvanesti look down on the Quailanesti is, you know, less because they, some of them have human blood in their veins and they, they dare to, they, they deign to consort with other people. Um, the elves are aware of the dragon orb. How? I don't know. Um, well, somebody mentioned a dragon orb, so they want the dragon orb. So the knights say, you can't have it. It's going to come to blows. Um, and the one who intercedes and stops it is Lorana. She's really growing as a character. Quote, I tell you, this is madness. Lorana cried angrily. Angrily. She threw herself between the flashing sword blades. The elves halted uncertainly. Sturm grabbed, Sturm grabbed a hold of her to drag her back, but she jerked free of his restraining hand. Goblins and draconians, all their hideous evil, do not sink to fighting among themselves. Her voice shook with rage. While we elves, the ancient embodiment of good, try to kill each other. Look, she lifted the lid of the chest with one hand and threw it open. In here we have the hope of the world, a dragon orb taking a great peril from ice wall. Our ship lies wrecked in the waters out there. We drove away the dragon that sought to recover this orb. And after all this, we find our greatest peril among our own people if this is true if we have sunk so low then kill us now and i swear not one in this person will try to group in this in this group will try to stop you um that calms everybody down um uh Gilthanus is fucked up he's laying on his faces he's he's you know it's a fantasy book, so you think just getting in the hay, hitting the face is not a big idea, not that big of a deal. But it was a big staff cracked him across the face, really hurt him. Um, so they try to apologize. They find out actually that well, the reason they apologize, they find out that uh, Lorana and Gilthanus are are Quellanesti royalty. That's a big no no, even among the Sylvanesti. That's like attacking another nation's kicking. You know, that's just not a good thing. So like, uh, we're trying to get him to heal. You know, and then Alistair tries to step up. Um, 
and the elves don't want him to. They think it's blasphemy that a that a human could even consider himself to be a cleric of Paladine. Um, the elves start to discuss among themselves, um, and they're they're trying to figure out what to do with the dragon orb. Derek, Crown Guard steps up. Um, and he's basically talking shit, saying they can't trust Lorana because she's an elf. You know, nobody. Remember, nobody trusts each other in this climate. You know, um, the elves blame the humans for the cataclysm. Um, they actually have a point because one human did cause the cataclysm, really, but it's not the entire race's fault. Um, also, being just bigots and you know all that stuff, they just don't like him anyway. But uh, Derek Crownguard starts talking shit about Lorana, and that pisses Flint off, who finally pipes up. Quote, Sturm started to intervene, but the dwarf shoved him aside to confront Derek. It was a ludicrous sight, and one Sturm offered member with a smile, storing it up to share with Tannis. The dwarf, his long white beard wet and scraggly, water dripping from his clothes to form puddles at his feet, stood nearly level with Derek's belt buckle, scolding the tall, proud slamic knight as he might have scolded Tassahoff. You knights have lived in Case and Meadows so long it's shaking your brains to mush, the dwarf snorted. If you ever had any brains to begin with, which I doubt, I've seen that girl grow from a wee bit of a thing to the beautiful woman she is now. And I tell you, there isn't a more courageous, noble person on Kryn, which is what's got you is that she just saved your hide and you can't handle that. Um, I love that. You know, Flint being Flint has known Lorana. Remember, you know, in the in the book, uh, Kindred Spirits, which we will review, it'll be um, it'll be shorter probably than uh, might be an addendum show or whatever. Um you know, remember he he was called to Quaunesti when he lived in Solace by the Speaker of the Sons to do some metal work for him because Flint was famous in that part of Anselon for being a, a, such a brilliant metalsmith. And he, you know, grew to know Tannis Lorana when they were younger. Remember, he's a dwarf, so you know he was probably late middle age at this point, and then he gets this, and now he's an old man when they're grown up. So. Um. Then we have the. Uh, hold on a second. It's revealed that there are three three uh, races of elves living in um in this place in Southern Urgoth, and um, Tasselhoff, of course, is curious. He didn't know there were. Th- I don't know now. I don't know how he didn't know this, but um, he finds out there's three races of elves. Um. And Lorana explains it. Quote, the Kaganasti known as wild elves in the common tongue are the third race, Lorana continued. They fought with us during the Kinslayer Wars. In return for their loyalty, Kith Kanan gave them the mountains of Urgoth. This was before Kwalanasti and Urgoth were split by the cata- apart by the cataclysm. I'm not surprised you've never heard of the wilder elves. They are a secretive people and keep to themselves. Once called the border elves, they are ferocious fighters and serve Kith Kanan well, but they have no love for cities. They mingled with druids and learned their lore. They brought back the ways of the ancient elves. Uh, but people consider them barbarians just as your people consider the plains of the barbaric. We have a, you know, she talks about how, again, this is a part of our theme, you know, this family of elves who now it's become very bitter between them because the Sylvanasty are there, the Quaonasty are there, the Sylvanasty basically think they're higher above everybody else. The Quaonasty are just, are probably just below them, but more below them. They think they probably are. And then the Kaganasty are just, you know, indentured servants uh, become at this point. Um, 
And then Lorana goes into starts to tell him about all the hatreds and stuff that is that have flashed between these three. And, uh, you know, I like Flint has a part here. Quote, there now last, Flint said, touching her hand. The dwarves have known it, too. She's talking about the, the hatred between family. You saw the way I was treated in Thurbarden, a hill dwarf among mountain dwarves. Of all the hatreds, the one between families are the cruelest. It's, as I said, you know, it's uh, pretty, you know, there's one thing about, um, Korean and Dragonlance as, as opposed to uh, Middle-earth. The elves of Middle-earth are all pretty much cut from one cloth. They're all the same, you know. In this... They all like breakfast very much. <laughs> they're all just kind of... They're beautiful, but they're kind of... You know what I mean? They're just... They're they're very cookie-cutter. Here, there's all kinds of elves. In Ancelon, you've got uh, the Sylvanesti, the Quaonesti, the Kaganesti. You've even got uh, aquatic elves called the Darganesti and the Dimmernesti, which we'll get into later. Um... You know, there's, you know, dark elves, which are not a separate race, but they, you know, but they're just elves that have been banished for embracing evil. Taudus, on the other hand, has so many different kinds of elves that it's, and they're also vastly interesting. You have, um, in this place called the Tamire, you have these uh, horsemen elves who are like Mongol elves called the Hosky. The Hosky are awesome. They have these, uh, clan totems one of them is a is the clan of the tiger and they're like their their battle cries enough to send any evil armor running army running because they're such you know implacable terrible terrifying warriors then you have um in the in the jungle you have the chessai who are like jungle elves who you know um are very are very small and dark-skinned and you know use pygmies yeah yeah very much and um you have uh, then you have a group of elves that were blown over from Kith Kanan's uh, fleet that went around Ancelon, the Sylvan Eyes. They were Sylvanesti elves. Who Quick note. Kith Kanan sort of sounds like a late '80s pro wrestler that's already in the ring. <laughs> whenever they come back from commercial, <laughs> yeah. getting ready to get squashed, he's getting ready to get the road warriors are getting ready to beat the shit out of him. Yeah, um, Kith Kanan, he <laughs> just does this, and everybody's like, like booing him. You hear this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and they these Sylvanesti elves are now in Taladus, and they're called the Sylvanes, and they have their own, uh, their own like a smaller version of their homeland from from Ancelon in Taladus. Humans aren't allowed in there. They have you know the humans in Taladus are Native American in in style, like dark skinned, long hair, you know, very uh, woods oriented stuff like that. Um, there's I think there's probably at least one more group there. But I mean, the elves are so vastly, you know, for a people that don't change much as humans do, there's a lot of different kinds of elves. I always found that really fascinating. Um, and then, uh, Lorana goes more into this, uh, relationship quote, they allow us to share their homeland have been treated worst of all. The Kaganesti have always been poor in material wealth, poor by our standards, but they're not by theirs. They live in the forests and mountains, taking what they need from the land. They are gatherers, hunters. They raise no crops. They forge no metal. When we arrived, our people appeared rich to them with our golden jewelry and steel weapons. Many of their young people came to the Quaonesti and the Sylvanesti, seeking to learn the secrets of making shining gold and silver and steel. Lorana bit her lip, her face hardened. I say to my shame that my people have taken advantage of the wild elves' poverty. The Kaganesti work as slaves among us, and because of that, the Kaganesti elders grow more and more savage and warlike as they see your young people taken away and their old way of life threatened. 
um, then a Kaganesti woman steps up. They describe her as dirty and stuff like that. I I don't get that. I mean, you can be a barbarian people and still be clean, but this particular young uh, wilder elf is is dirty and she comes to treat um, Elistan, or treat Gelthinus, quote, she was dressed in leather breeches tucked into leather boots, a shirt obviously cast off by some elf lord hung from her shoulders. She was pale and too thin, undernourished. Her matted hair was so filthy it was impossible to distinguish its color, but the hand that touched Gelthinus was slender and shapely. Concern and compassion for him was apparent in her gentle face. They weren't allowing Elistan to heal him. So they called for this uh, this wilder elf to do it. Um, uh, she introduced, Lorna asked her what her name is. Her name is Silvert. Um, Silvert, that could be like a guy from up a holler, like 20 mile or something. Y'all seen Silvert? <laughs> um, then they start discussing uh, Sandcrest, what they're going to do on Sandcrest, you know, with the dragon orb. Um, and they talk about boats again. <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't sit well with Flint. Quote, and we've got to go there? Yes. To use the dragon orb? We don't know anything about it. The knights will learn, Sturm said softly. The future of the world rests on this. Hump, the dwarf snee- sneezed. Carrying a ter- casting a terrified glance in night dark waters, he shook his head gloomily. All I know is I've been drowned twice, stricken with a deadly disease. You were seasick. Stricken with a deadly disease, Flint repeated loudly, and sunk. Mark my words, Sturm Brightblade. Boats are bad luck to us. We've had nothing but terrible trouble since we set food in that blasted boat on Christmas Miller Lake. He's got a point. Um... That was where the crazed magician first saw the constellations that had disappeared, and our luck's gone straight downhill from there. As long as we keep relying on boats, it's going to go from bad to worse. Sturm smiled as he watched the dwarf squish through the sand, but his smile turned to a sigh. I wish we were all that simple, the knight thought. Um, so now they're, they're talking about um, this big meeting of all the, the, the different groups of elves. The, the Knights of Salani are going to go to Sandcrest, and, and it's like this. Um, there's a description of Sandcrest, which we won't get into this time. But then... Um, we have a family reunion now, uh, but you must remember that, of course, that Lorana ran off, you know, uh, to be with Tannis, and that was not received well. But we open with the Speaker of the Sons, which I'm disappointed in him with this, because when they introduce him in Kindred Spirits, he's really a great guy. Like, he's trying to be a ruler, more open, more tolerant. That's why he brought Flint in to do – it was not It was not just because Flint was great – at what he did is because he was trying to reach out and, and make Quell and Esty more since the destruction of the cataclysm. He's like, well, we need to start reaching out to each other. We need to be more of a family of races as opposed to just being closed off. I always kind of liked him, but now he's, you know, anyway, quote, the Speaker of the Sons, leader of the Quail and SDL, sat in the crude shelter of wood and mud the Kaganesti had built for his domicile. He considered it crude. The Kaganesti considered it a marvelously large and well-crafted dwelling suitable for five or six families. Think of the Kaganesti as like Native Americans, basically. They had, in fact, intended it as such and were shocked when the Speaker declared it barely adequate for his needs and moved in with his wife alone. Of course, what the Kaganesti could not know was that the Speaker's home in exile became the central headquarters for all the business of Quail and the ceremonial guards assumed exactly the same positions that they had in the sculpture halls of the palace in Qualinost. The speaker held audience at the same time and in the same courtly manner, save that the ceiling was a mud-covered dome of thatched grass instead of glittering mosaic, his walls instead of his walls wood instead of crystal quartz. Um, he's trying to deal with this whole thing. This both both elven races are dismissed from their home. You know, the world's in complete chaos. He, you know, he's 
and his daughter and son, he doesn't know if his daughter's alive. She ran off his, his son either. Cause his son was with them, but he was supposed to go. And he, and that's the worst part is that, um, he didn't know if Gilthus was alive, but it was okay for him because he was sacrificing himself for heroic deed and noble act. It was all right for his son to do that. It wasn't all right for Lorana to do what she did. Um, um, then he talks about Portheos, the older, the older son. Remember him? He's this tall, very stern elf lord, and uh, thinks they're being he, he thinks they're being too stern. I think. Um, quote: The speaker was among these, among these, which was the main reason he did not turn things over to Portheos. He thought Portheos was a little bit too too stiff. Um, occasionally, he tried to point out to his elder son that moderation and patience won more victories than threats and sword rattling. But Portheus believes his father to be soft and sentimental. The Sylvanessi with a rigid caste structure considered the Quellanessi barely part of the elven race and the Kaganessi no part of the elven race at all. Viewing, viewing them as a sub-race of elves, much as gully dwarves were seen as a sub-race of the dwarves. Remember gully dwarves. Um, Portheus firmly believed, although he did not tell his father that it must end in bloodshed. His views were matched on the other side of the thon. Man, that's a that's a quite a word. The Thon Salarian by a stiff-necked, cold-blooded lord named Quinath, who was rumored was the betrothed of the Princess Alana Starbreeze. Lord Quinath was now leader of the Silanassi in her unexplained absence, and it was he and Portheos who divided the isle between the two warring nations of elves, disregarding the third race entirely. We now have a very tense situation between these two groups, you know, with the Kaganesti caught in the middle. The borderlines were patronizingly communicated to the Kaganesti, as one might communicate to a dog that, that is not to enter the kitchen. The Kaganesti noted for their volatile tempers were outraged to find their land being divided up and parceled out. Already the hunting was growing bad. The animals, the wild elves, depended on their on for their survival were being wiped out in great numbers to feed the refugees. As Lorana said, the river of the dead could at any moment run red with blood and its name changed tragically we're heading towards a civil war amongst the elves you know uh as i've said the and as flint said the the bitterest hatreds are between family and whether they like it or not they're family um he and this is again the speaker conducting business just as usual and then you know one of his guards um he hears one of his guards Say something to us who, who is approaching. Quote, one of the guards opened the door, obviously intending to announce someone, but words failed him. And before he could speak, a tall, slender figure dressed in a heavy wood, hooded fur cloak pushed past the guard and ran toward the speaker. Startled, seeing only the figure was armed with sword and bow, the speaker shrank back in alarm. The figure threw back the hood of her cloak. The speaker saw honey cold hair flow down around a woman's face, a face remarkable even among the elves for its delicate beauty. Father, she cried, and then Lorana was in his arms. Um, he's happy to see her and of course there's this you know reunion that's going to be you know intense because he thought she was dead and all that stuff but he's not happy with her um elven women especially are are Hold on um, but as I was saying, Lorana, things are expected of her. Not uh, she's not she's not even a regular elven woman who you know is uh, you know expected to be a certain way. She's royalty. She has a duty, and uh, her father expects her to go right back to that. But she's grown as a person, so we get the, you start to see this uh, this you know real tension between them. Quote, 
you will find our, this was at a feast where this happens. They're all sitting around. Everybody's really tense. Quote, you will find our lives much different from our lives in Kualanesti, her father told her brother that night as they sat at the banquet held indoors in a great log hall built by the Kaganesti. But you will soon become accustomed to it. Turning to Lorana, he spoke formally. I would be glad to have you back in your old place as my scribe, but I know you will be busy with other things around our household. Um, they, she doesn't know what to do either. She's, you know, of course, such a powerful man as her father as her father, you know, has always been very, you know, loving, but also a very powerful figure. And so that means he's got a big personality. So he's of course going to be, you know, she's going to be intimidated, even though after all the stuff she's done, um, they start discussing the dragon orb. Um, Portheos says that, uh, you know, Portheos and the speaker say they, they can't take the orb to Sancris. It's out of the question. They're not going to release it. You know, they, the elves basically knowing that they know better than everybody else because they're the longest lived and they're the most powerful. Say they basically have the orb now and they're not giving it back. That's the gist of what they're talking about. Um, and like, they're, if, like if the ball goes over the fence. And uh, into the uh, mean neighbor's yard. Yeah. It's their, it's their ball. Now. Sure. Um, you know, Portheos is claiming and, and the speaker's claiming that since has been brought in a Quaglanassi in exile, it's theirs now. Um, they're talking about who's laying claim. Sturm, of course, the Knights are pissed off by this. Um, again, uh, Flint comes in to save the day. I really start to love, love Flint here. Quote, if, it anyone, if it's anyone's to claim, it is Loranus. Flint Thor, Fireford spoke up, not at all intimidated by the elves' glaring stares. For it was she who killed Phil Thaz, Thaz the, elven, el, the evil elven magic user. That's the first time, actually, that they pointed out that Phil Thaz was, was, an, was a dark elf. Um, then, of course, Tasselhoff not understanding the the kinder just don't understand property. They don't own, understand ownership of things. So we get a, a, a quite humorous uh, little interjection by him. Quote, isn't that odd? Remarked the Kinder cheerfully, having missed the serious portent of the conversation. According to Kinder law, if there is a Kinder law, everybody sort of owns everything. This was quite true. The Kinder's casual attitude toward the possessions of others extended to their own. Nothing in a Kinder house remained there for long unless it was nailed to the floor. Sun neighbor was certainly to wander in, admire it, and absentmindedly walk off with it. A family heirloom among Kinders was as fine as anything remaining in a house longer than three weeks. <laughs> so... Um, of course, Flint kicks Tasselhoff under the table, tell him to, you know, keep quiet in this big, serious thing. Um, you know, there's this this whole um, big argument about what's going to happen. Um, Derek starts getting up and yelling. Sturm, he's kind of caught in the middle. Um, Lorana speaks up in the night's defense. Um which doesn't go over well. Quote, you know, he speaks truly, Father Lana said, greatly daring. Elven women did not attend war meetings, much less speak. I wouldn't imagine, I wouldn't imagine, uh, imagine any women in my life finding elven society palatable for, for women. Um, doesn't seem to be ideal. No, it's very Stepford. I, mean, I like Very it. Stepford wifeish. I like it. <laughs> I'm behind it 100%. <laughs> sure you Lorana was present only because of her unique involvement. Rising to her feet, she faced her brother, who glowered at her disapprovingly. Portheos, our father told us in Quaglanesti that the dragon High Lord wanted not only lands, but all the extermination of her race. Have you forgotten? Bah, that was one dragon High Lord, Verminard. He is dead. Yes, because of us, Lorana shouted angrily, not you. 
Lerana, the Speaker of the Suns, rose to his full height, taller even than his oldest son. I imagine him being about maybe six foot six. His presence towered over them over them all. You forget yourself, young woman. You have no right to speak to your older brother like that. We face perils of our own in our journey. He remembered his duties and responsibility, as did Gilthanus. They did not go running after a half-elven bastard like a brazen human. The speaker stopped abruptly. Ron went white to the lips. She swayed, clutching the table for support. Gilthanus rose swiftly, coming to her side, but she pushed him away. Father, she said in a voice that she didn't recognize, what were you about to say? Um, about to call her a whore, acting like a like a human whore. Um, she fits. Verona's <laughs> awesome. I love her. She's not very interesting to begin with, but she really comes into her own and becomes a very compelling character. Um, I, I like the fact that I think uh, Tracy Hickman named her because his wife's name is Laura. I think so. He called her Lorana. It was kind of you know That's nice. Cool. Yeah. Um, In Spanish, that would mean the Rana. <laughs> so every, everybody knows. I'm bilingual, bisexual, bipolar. It's all the things. Um, after this, the speaker orders Lana, the Rana to her to her rooms, um, and the Rana is like heartbroken that her father would say that to her. And then Porthias, of course, speaks up. You know, and if there's a if there's a situation that's bad, there's nothing he can't do to make it worse. Uh, quote. Sister, do as your father commands, Porthius said. As for what we think of you, remember, you brought this on yourself. What do you expect? Look at you, Lorana. You're dressed like a man. You probably wear a sword stained with blood. You talk glibly of your adventures, traveling with men such as these, humans and dwarves, spending the nights with them, spending the nights with your half-breed lover. Where is he? Did he tire of you? And the firelight flared before Lorana's eyes. Its heat swept over her body to be replaced by a terrible cold. She could see nothing and remember only a horrified sensation of falling without being able to catch herself. Voices came to her from a great distance. Distorted faces bent over her. She, she fainted. Um, After that, Lorana gets, she wakes up in her room. Um, but she's woken up by Silvert. Um, quote, a cup was placed to her lips. Laurent sipped at it, tasting clear, cold water. She grasped it and drank eagerly, feeling it cool her fevered blood. Strength returned. She found she could see again. A small candle burned beside her bed. She was in her room in her father's house. Her clothes lay on a crude wooden, on a crude wooden bench. Her sword belt and scabbard stood near. Her pack was on the floor. At the table across from her bed sat a nursemaid, her head cra- cradled in her arms, fast asleep. Um, turns out the uh, the elves, the woman elf's water elf's name is Silvara. It's not Silver. It was kind of a nickname, whatever. Um, then something kind of happens. Um, the nature of this elf, of this water elf, will become apparent later. Um, she all she just basically urges Lorana. She's like, she said, "Why well, want you to go take me with you when she when you go?" And she's like, "I'm not going anywhere." And um, and she says, "Aren't you?" You know. And then she tells him she can help find a ship to Sandcrest. Um, and she knows about the Dragon Orb. How would she know about the Dragon Orb? You know, it's not common knowledge. So how would this this wild elf know about this? Um, she lies, of course. Well, not lies, of course, but she she is lying, saying she or people have stories about it. 
um, you know, and all of a sudden Lorana doesn't know what to think of her. Um, Elistan is there. Um, and then, um, they're deciding what they're going to do about the dragon orb and Lorana decides it's a big decision. Um, she's going to go take it from her parents' room where her parents are sleeping. Um, Quote, this commits me, she thought. There will be no turning back, stealing a dragon lord, fleeing into the night, into strange and hostile country. And then there's Gelfinus. We've been through too much together for me to leave him behind, but he will be appalled at the idea of stealing the orb and running away. And if he chooses not to go with me, would he betray us? Lorana closed her eyes for a moment. She laid her head down wearily on her knees. Tana, she thought, where are you? What should I do? Why is it up to me? I didn't want this. And then, as she sat there, Lorana, Lorana remembered seeing weariness and sorrow on Tannis' face that mirrored her own. Maybe he asked himself these same things. All the times, I thought he was so strong, perhaps he really felt as lost and frightened as I do. Certainly, he felt abandoned by his people, and we depended on him, whether, we, whether he wanted us to or not. But he accepted it. He did what he believed was right, and so must I. Briskly, refusing to allow herself to think any further, Lorana lifted her head and beckoned for Silvara to come near. Um, then we're back to... Uh, Sturm, Tasselhoff, and uh, Derek and Flint are being held as guests, so they say. Uh, <laughs> it's not as guests. They're being, they're, they're being watched and imprisoned. Quote, Sturm paced the length of the crude cabin that had given to them unable to sleep. The, do- the dwarf lay stretched out on a bed, snoring loudly. Across the room, Tasselhoff lay curled in a ball of misery, chained by his foot to the bedpost, Sturm's side. How much trouble could they, how much more trouble could they get into? The evening had gone from bad to worse. After Lorana had faded, it had been all Sturm could do to hold back the enraged dwarf. I love Flint. He just he takes such tries to take such good care of her. Flint vowed to tear Porthos limb from limb. Derek stated, Derek stated he considered himself to be a prisoner held by the enemy, and as such, it was his duty to try and escape. Then he would bring the knights down and recover the dragon orb by force. Derek was immediately escorted away by the guards. Just when Flint Sturm got Flint calmed down, an elf lord appeared out of nowhere and accused Tefalhoff of stealing his purse. So... Um, so they're stuck they're imprisoned um, and but then we have uh, a character from the past who appears uh, on the roof I think he's on the roof of the uh, yeah he's on the ceiling um, and it is uh, Theros Seinfeld remember Theros had his arm cut off big black dude blacksmith um, and he just Says he's going to bust him out. He's breaking him out. Quote, hush, the smith commanded. No time for questions. The lady of Lorana sent me to free you. This is Lorana's doing, too. We are to meet her in the woods beyond the camp. Make haste. We are only a few hours before dawn, and we must be across the river by then. Thera strode over to Tasselhoff to look at Tasselhoff, who was trying without success to free himself. Well, Master Thief, I see someone caught you at last. I'm not a thief, Tad said indignantly. You know me better than that, Theros. The purse was planted on me. The smith chuckled. Taking hold of the chain in his hands, he gave a sudden heave, and it split apart. Tasselhoff, however, did not even notice. He was staring at the smith's arms. One arm the left was a dusky black the color of the smith's skin but the other arm the right was bright shining silver Theris had said in a strangled arm your arm questions later little thief the smith had said sternly now we move swift and and we move silent across the river flint moaned shaking his head more boats more boats um then we go back to lorana she's now I like this part. This would be a, a very good part of like a show where all these 
things are going on. It's like a heist thing, kind of. You know, they're getting broken out. Laurent is sneaking into a room, um, into her parents' room. Imagine this is like a Mission Impossible scene. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought stuff. about. Yeah, this is exactly what I thought about when I when I like that music. You know, it's whatever. Um, quote. And then uh, Lorana is now in her parents' room, and uh, they're asleep. The speaker and his wife are asleep in the bed. Quote, the chest stood at the end of her father's bed. It was locked, but the companions all carried a copy of the small silver key. Swiftly, Lorana unlocked the chest and lifted the lid. Then she nearly dropped it in her amazement. The dragon orb was there, still glowing with a soft white and blue light. But it wasn't the same orb, or if it was, it had shrunk. As Savara said, it was now no more the side of a child's playing ball. Lorana reached it and reached in to take it. It was lit, still heavy, but she could lift it easily. Gingerly grasping at her hand, shaking, she raised it from the box and handed it to Silvara. The wilder elf immediately hid it beneath her cloak. Lorana picked up the wood shaft of the broken dragon lance, wondering as she did so why she bothered taking the broken old weapon. I'll take it because Stur- because the knight handed it to Sturm, she thought. He, want- he wanted him to have it. Um, just then her father wakes up. Um, she wasn't going to take... Uh, and then she takes uh, Tannis' sword. Um, she's going to put the Dragonlance back with the, again, the Wilder Elf doing things that are suspicious. You know, tells her, what are you doing? Take it. You take, take all of it. You know, we have to get all of it. Um, quote, Lorena stared, stared at the girl in amazement. Then hastily she retrieved the lance, concealed it beneath her cloak, and carefully shut the chest, leaving the sword inside. Just as the lid left her cold fingers, her father rolled over in his bed, half sitting up. What? Who is there? He asked, starting to shake off his sleep in his alarm. Lorana felt several hours trembling and clutched the girl's hand reassuringly, warning, warning her to be silent. It's I, Father, she said in a faint voice. Lorana, I wanted to tell you I'm sorry, Father, and I ask you to forgive me. Oh, Lorana, the speaker lay back down on his pillows, closing his eyes. I forgive my daughter. Now return to your bed. We'll talk in the morning. Lorana waited till his breathing came quiet and regular. Then she led Silvara from the room, gripping the dragonless firmly beneath her cloak. Um... They're escaping now, and um, they go to meet uh, go to meet Theros, who's waiting for them near the river. Um, and uh, Gelthinus is there waiting for him. Um, Derek accuses him of you know, asking him if he escaped. "Quote: I did not escape." Gilthinus returned coldly. I left my father's house to accompany my sister and her Silvar, her maid, through the darkness. Taking the orbs is my sister's idea, not mine. There's still time to re- reconsider this madness, Lorana. Gilthinus turned to her. Return the orb. Don't let Portheus' hasty words drive away your common sense. If we keep the orb here, we can use it to defend our people. We can find out how it works. We have magic users among us. Um, you know, he's still hanging on to that idea that the elves know best. And, uh, you know, basically just selfishly, they're very selfish. They're all of them, you know, with the, with the exception of the Kaganasty, um, are extremely selfish. They, they want to defend themselves. They don't care about anybody else. Everybody else can go hang, you know, as long as they have something to protect themselves and they can go back to their homeland and cut themselves off from the rest of the world. I mean, they're the elves in, 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 in middle earth are extremely likable because they're, they're angels. They're godlike, and they welcome everybody, um, except evil creatures. Of course, the elves in Kryn are not likable. They're selfish. They're insular. You know, I think we're starting to get that idea. I mean, it's not. It's not a subtle point that's being made. It's sort of uh, ham-handed. It is a little bit heavy-handed sometimes. Um, 
then we have at the end of this chapter we have an odd thing we have a uh, thought from Silvara's point of view quote Silvara carrying the dragon orb felt the cold crystal grow warm as she held it near her body felt it stir and pulse with life what am I to do she whispered herself distractedly and Kaganasty stumbling almost blindly through the darkness this came to me why I don't understand what am I to do um you know it's odd that a brand new character would you know thinking about how she's I mean who is she she's a you know, a, a wild elf who's not really got anything at stake here. So who is she? We'll find out. Um, they go down to the river. Um, I like this part that uh, Silvara keeps on calling uh, Theros Cargay uh, Sargeron. And uh, it's he of the silver arm is his name. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, um and the Kaganesti, Lorana observes us that the that the Kaganesti trust him, you know, which is it doesn't really say the Kaganesti don't like humans, but I would assume that they have probably a little bit of what their more powerful cousins do, that kind of distrust for them, because um, it's only natural. Um, but they really seem to trust and like Theros, and he tells why. Quote: I told you I spent a good time. I told you I spend a good time of my time wandering. That is not quite true. I spend much time among Silvara's people. The smith's dusky face creased in a scowl. Meaning no disrespect, elf lady, but you have no idea what hardships your people are causing these wild ones. Shooting the game or driving it away, enslaving the young with gold and silver and steel. Theris heaved an angry sigh. I have done what I could. I showed them how to forge hunting weapons and tools, but the winter will be long and hard, I fear. Ordinary game is becoming scarce. If it comes to killing, starving or killing their kin, he doesn't finish that thought. Um, Lorana kind of cuts in and says, well, hey, I could do something you know, I say. And uh, Sturm tells her that, you know, she, that's not her responsibility. Quote, you can't be in all places at the same time, Sturm said. The elves must solve their problems, Lorana. You are doing the right thing. I know, she said, sighing. She turned her head looking behind her toward the Quaonesti camp. I was just like them, Sturm, she said, shivering. My beautiful tiny world had resolved, had revolved around me for so long that I thought I was the center of the universe. I ran after Tannis because I was certain I could make him love me. Why shouldn't he? Everyone else did. And then I discovered the world didn't revolve around me. It didn't even care about me. I saw suffering and death. I was forced to kill. She stared down at her hands or be killed. I saw real love, love like river winds and gold moons, love that was willing to sacrifice everything, even life itself. I felt very petty and very small. And now that's how my people seem to me, petty and small. You used to think they were perfect, but now I understand how Tannis felt and why he left. Um, I like that. The fact that she's... For some reason, my... Uh, Your screen is dimming. You got, is the battery running low? No, no. It's uh, For some reason, the A-L-E-X-A popped up. What the oh, hell? Alexa, you silly goose. What in the hell? Oh, no. Hold on. I mean, technical difficulties. Um, they have uh, trouble getting uh, Flint in the boat because they're getting to flow down the, ro- the river now, of course. And uh, he has one thing why they call it the River of the Dead. And uh, Theros says, you'll see soon enough. Um then he says, here's your answer. Quote, drifting down the branch of the river that flowed from the north was another boat. At first they thought it had slipped its moorings, for they could see no one inside. Then they saw it rode too low in the water to be empty. 
The wider elves slowed their own boats, steering them into the shallow water, and held them steady, heads bowed in silent respect. And then Lorana knew. A funeral boat, she murmured. I said there, I was watching with sad eyes. The boat drifted past, carried, carried near them by the current. Inside, they could see the body of a young wilder elf, a warrior to judge by his crude leather armor, his hands folded across his chest, clasped an iron sword and cold fingers. A bow and quiver of arrows lay at his side. His arrows were closing the peaceful sleep from which he would never awaken. Now you know why it's called Thon Salarium, the river of the dead, Savar said in her low musical voice. For centuries, my people have returned the dead to the sea where we were born. This ancient custom of my people has become a better point of contention between the Kaganesti and our cousins. Her eyes went to Gelfinus. Your people consider this a desecration of the river. They try to force us to stop. Um, Thera said something about um, Sarah Layer is going to be an arrow and a Selvanesti or Quaunesti or Kaganesti's elf, and that's going to be war. Basically, all these elven nations, as we said before, are poised for civil war. They're they're you know ready to go at each other, um, which is something that has not happened since the Kinslayer Wars, which was a very bitter conflict. Like it, uh, one nation of elves had to separate and and become their own group because they just couldn't get along. Um, but then Sturm says something about something that you. Uh, Quote, I think all the elves will have, to have a much more deadly enemy face, Sturm said, shaking his head. Look, he pointed. At the feet of the dead warrior lay a shield, the shield of the enemy he had died fighting. Recognizing the foul symbol traced on the battered shield, Lorana drew in her breath. Draconian. This draconian shield. Um, they're, dro- they're drawing up the river now, uh, Slan Solarian, and uh, then we get uh, Tassahoff piping up, uh, observing something. Quote, why, how odd, the kinder said suddenly. Reaching down, he put his small hand into the water. Look, he said in excitement. His hand was coated in fine silver and sparkled in the early morning light. The water glitters. Look, Flint, he called to the dwarf from the other boat. Look into the water. I will not, said the dwarf through Clint chattering teeth. Flint rode grimly. There was no, but though there was some question to his effectiveness. He, said, he steadfastly refused to look into the water and consequently was out of time with everyone else. You are right, Kinderkin, Silver said, said smiling. Silvara said, smiling. In fact, the Silvanesti named the river Thar Sargon, which means Silver Road. It is too bad you have come here in such dismal weather. When the sun moves, when the sun, silver rises in its fullness, the river turns to molten silver and is truly beautiful. Um, we're coming to the end now, and um, Silvara tells uh, why the river is this way. Um, Gilthinus wants her to say it. Gilthinus is starting to fall for her. Something about her. And uh, she didn't want to say anything, but then he urges her. And she, she says, quote, Very well, she said, flushing. Clearing her throat, she began. According to the Kaganesti, in the last day of the terrible dragon wars, Huma traveled through the land, seeking to help the people. But he realized to his sorrow that he was powerless to stop the desolation and destruction of the dragons. He prayed for the gods, to the gods for an answer. Silvara glanced at Sturm, who nodded his head solemnly. True, the knight said, and Paladin answered his prayer, sending the white stag. But where it led, none know. My people know, Silvara said softly, because the stag led Huma, after many trials and dangers, to a quiet grove here in the land of Urgoth. In the grove he met a woman, beautiful and virtuous, who eased his pain. Human fell in love with her, and she with him. But she refused to refuse his pledges of love for many months. Finally, unable to deny the burning fire within her, the woman returned Huma's love. I guess that means they had sex. Their happiness was like the silver moonlight in the, in the light of ter- in a night of terrible darkness. Silvara fell silent a moment, her eyes staring far away. Absently, she absently she reached down to touch the coarse fabric of the cloak covering the dragon lord, which lay at her feet. 
Go on, Galthanista urged the elf lord to give him all pretext of paddling and sat still, enchanted by Silver's, Silvara's beautiful eyes, her musical voice. Silvara sighed. Dropping the fabric from her hand, she started, stared out over the water into the shadowy woods. Their joys were brief, she said softly, for the woman had a terrible secret. She was not born of woman, but of dragon. Only by her magic did she keep the shape of womankind, but she could no longer lie to Huma. She loved him too much. Fearfully, she revealed to Huma what she was, appearing before him one night in her true shape, that of a silver dragon. She hoped he would hate her, even destroy her, for her pain was so great she did not want to live. But looking at the radiant, magnificent creature before him, the knight saw within her eyes the noble spirit of the woman he loved. Her magic returned the shape of a woman, but she prayed to Paladin that he give that he give her woman's shape forever. She would give her magic in a long lifespan of dragons to live in the world with Huma. Silvara closed her eyes, her face strong with pain. Yelthanus, watching her, wondered why she was so affected by this legend. Reaching out, he touched her hand. She started like a, like a wild animal, drawing back so suddenly that the boat rocked. I'm sorry, Yelthanus said. I didn't mean to scare you. What happened? What was Paladin's answer? Silvara drew a deep breath. Paladin granted her wish with a terrible condition. He showed them both the future. If she remained a dragon, she and Huma would be given the dragon lance and the power to defeat the evil dragons. If she became mortal, she and Huma would live together as man and wife, but the evil dragons would remain in the land forever. Huma vowed he would give up everything, his knighthood, his honor, to remain with her. But she saw the light die in his eyes as he spoke, and weeping, she knew the answer she must give. The evil dragons must not be allowed to stay in the world. And the Silver River, it was said, was formed from the tears shed by the dragon when Huma left her to find the dragon lance. 